Welcome, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of the Law of Self-Defense. Yes, indeed, we are back to our regular Law of Self-Defense programming now that that excruciating Alec murder, murder trial is finally over. For those who may not know, I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it is great. It is great to be back. Thank you, everybody. Uh, so today we're going to talk about uh, an academic paper, a scholarly paper that was written on the subject of self-defense. Uh, and I want to state up front, uh, what I'm, this is not intended to be a hypercritical um, review of the paper. I do not think this paper is hot garbage. I think there's good content in it. Uh, but I wanted to review it with all of you because I think it reflects a common, in my experience, invariable weakness in the academic literature on self-defense law. And that is that it's, it's, it's weak. It's weak in its understanding of self-defense law, messy, sloppy, uh, not rigorous. Uh, and I observed this when I first was developing my own expertise in self-defense law. I thought, you know what? I'll go look at the law review papers on self-defense law, use of force law. And most of them are garbage. Uh, this one's not garbage, but uh, it's a good opportunity to share with all of you how even though the author of a scholarly paper can have world-class academic and legal credentials, it doesn't mean they did a great job on a scholarly paper of self-defense law. Uh, so that's what we're going to do today. Before I jump into that, I do want to uh, mention, of course, that the sponsor of today's show is none other than... Law of Self-Defense itself. We have our upcoming Law of Self-Defense advanced class, Saturday, April 15th. This is a full-day live class taught by me, streamed to you at your computer on how to be hard to convict, how to be an unattractive target of prosecution if you're ever compelled to use force in defense of yourself, your family, your property, all in one day. Uh, live, plenty of opportunity for Q&A. Uh, and this is the only one scheduled for all of 2023, folks. So, if you missed this one, you're looking until probably sometime next year and, and, until we do another one. Uh, you don't want to do that. And if you have some other obligation on Saturday, April 15th, I would suggest you still sign up anyway, because you'll be given access, whether you attend on Saturday or not, you'll be given access. All the students will be given access to the recorded playback of the course. So if you can't make it Saturday, you'll have access to the recording. If you can make it Saturday, but Listen, this is a fire hose of information. Uh, if you'd like to review the entire class again or, or selected portions of it, you'll be able to do that when you get a, the link to the recorded playback of the course. And if you sign up for this April 15th class this month, the month of March, you get 10% off your registration. Uh, I would encourage you to go to the link here, lawselfdefense.com slash advanced. We provide a lot more detail on what the course covers. We list a hundred different questions on use of force law that this class answers. Learn more and register at lawofselfdefense.com slash advanced. Uh, also, in terms of uh, questions, um, if you'd like questions answered on the show, we do it one of two ways. Uh, you can uh, post them as a super chat or a rumble rant on our YouTube or rumble streams. 
Uh, in fact, let me take a quick look and make sure those are working properly. YouTube is. Rumble is. The Law of Self-Defense dashboard is. And what about our Twitter channel at, at Law Self-Defense? No of at Law Self-Defense. That is working as well. So if you'd like questions answered here, there's a couple ways to do it. You can do a super chat on YouTube, a rumble rant on our rumble channel. Both of those have to be a minimum of $5, folks, and higher values get prioritized, of course. Or, frankly, the smarter play is become a Law of Self-Defense member and ask your questions on the Law of Self-Defense dashboard where we're streaming this video as well. And then you don't have to pay anything. Uh, and being a Law of Self-Defense member is only about 30 cents a day, folks, less than $10 a month. And you can ask as many questions as you like, and I'll answer them all for no additional cost. So it's 5 bucks a question on YouTube or Rumble or 30 cents a day for as many questions as you want by being a Law of Self-Defense member. You can become a Law of Self-Defense member right now at lawselfdefense.com slash join. All right, so let's see if there's anything else I need to cover. Oh, uh, probably when we're done with the paper, I know there's still a ton of questions uh, about the Alec Murdoch trial. Um, if anyone who's followed my coverage knows I think that this was an unjust conviction, uh, but I don't want to swamp the, this sh today's show about this paper with those questions. So I'm, I'm going to do this critical review of the scholarly paper. Uh, and then after we're done with all of that, I'll address uh, any Alec Murdoch questions that people have. But I'm only, only going to do that Alec Murdoch Q&A on the Law of Self-Defense member dashboard. So we'll be shutting down the YouTube stream, the Rumble stream, the Twitter stream, uh, and only for Law of Self-Defense members, I'll take whatever questions you might have about my view of the Alec Murdoch trial. That'll be after we're done doing this review of the paper, uh, including, by the way, my, my, my criticisms of how people are thinking about that trial. There's a lot of bad thinking, bad reasoning, emotional reasoning um, happening around this, uh, around this verdict in this case. And that's, that doesn't make for good legal analysis. It may, it may feel good emotionally, but it doesn't make for good legal analysis. All right, so let me pull up this paper here. Where did I put it? Here it is. I'll make it bigger. Let's see if this makes it bigger. And... Um, where did I? Oh, his credentials right here. All right. So this is the paper. I have a link to a PDF of the paper in the comments, not the comments, uh, in the uh, the notes or description for the video. Uh, so feel free to, to click on that and download it. If, you, if you'd like your own copy, uh, we'll be going through it here, obviously. Uh, and I do want to note how very, I wonder if I can make this even bigger. Let's see. Uh, how very well credentialed Dr. Dr. Funk is. Far more credentialed than I am, for sure. Uh, so I want to step through his credentials, both to give him credit, obviously, for his tremendous accomplishments, uh, but also uh, to provide the context that even someone with world-class academic credentials 
can turn out a scholarly work on self-defense law that's that's just not very strong. Um, so uh, it, there's a logical fallacy, a reasoning fallacy called uh, appeal to authority, where we just kind of assume uh, that if someone has is well-credentialed as an authority in a field, that everything they say uh, about that field has to be correct. Uh, I, I don't believe in appeals to authority. I'm a show-me kind of person. I like to get to the nuts and bolts of things and determine for myself uh, how things work. Uh, in the context of the law, that means I look to the actual law, not pe other people's opinions about the law or writings about the law, but the actual law itself. And the actual law, of course, are statutes, case law, uh, and jury instructions are really more of an amalgamation of statutes and case law, but that's the law. That's what matters in court. Um, not often imperfect uh, descriptions of the law in the scholarly writings, as we'll see here. Um, so, let me first go over Dr. Funk's uh, credentials. And I believe he lives right here in Colorado, um, not far from me. Uh, let's see. He's uh, Marcus Funk is a former federal prosecutor and U.S. State Department section chief who was taught criminal and comparative law at Northwestern University, the University of Chicago, the University of Colorado. I believe that's where he is now. And Oxford University, where he also received his doctorate in law. Uh, he wrote a book, I guess, on, uh, I guess this is supposed to be a book, Rethinking Self-Defense, The Ancient Rights Rational Distangled. I, I haven't read that book. Maybe I'll have to pick it up. Uh, but these academic credentials are obviously world-class. Uh, not only that, but he's also a lawyer with Perkin Coy, which is uh, one of the 50 largest law firms in America, $1.5 billion in annual revenue. Those are the big leagues, folks. I, I've never approached anything like that, either academically or professionally. Uh, so I want to give Dr. Funk full credit for his life achievements. A very, very impressive CV. And he still produces a sloppy paper on self-defense law, despite all that. Now, I will say, uh, in terms of, uh, to put this in the context of most scholarly writings, most law review articles, for example, on self-defense law are... Uh, horrific. They're just awful, uh, especially law review papers. So law review is, uh, you know, these are academic journals put out by law schools. Um, and one of the reasons so much of the scholarly work on self-defense law, and I presume other topics as well, but of course, my, my own expertise is self-defense law. These scholarly works are often so horrifically bad is that they're, they're written by people without deep expertise in the subject. Many law review articles, for example, are written by law school students, third-year law school students, um, and they, they, they qualify to get on law review. They'll write an article for the law review. It's prestigious. It helps them when they apply for jobs and so forth, but a third-year law student doesn't really know much about self-defense law. Certainly, they're not taught much self-defense law in law school. I wasn't. In three years of law school, we spent maybe a few minutes on self-defense law. Um, so, you, you tend not to get world-class scholarship out of a third-year law student, or or the papers are written by uh, law professors uh, who need to publish or perish, uh, and often they're written, they're triggered not by a passion for the subject, but by a case in the news, uh, the Rittenhouse trial, the Zimmerman trial, and all those professors realize, hey, if I write an article on this high-profile trial, it's more likely to get published somewhere. So they, they do that. They, they write about the self-defense law aspects of Zimmerman or Rittenhouse, but, but they don't really know the subject matter. 
they're not writing it because they have great expertise. They're writing it because it's a hot topic in the moment. And so their works tend to be not, not very deep in terms of quality, often very, very bad. Uh, also, of course, in preparing to write their papers, what did they do? They, they didn't go research actual law. In America, that would mean looking at the law really of all 50 states to have a robust understanding. That, that takes a long time, folks. I know because I did it. Uh, what they do is they go look at other scholarly writings on self-defense law, most of which are also hot garbage. So garbage in, garbage out, you tend not to get very good papers. So in the context of those other papers, this one's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, but it still gets sloppy when it's talking about self-defense law itself. Now, the, the core premise argument of this paper uh, is right there in the title, busting the durable myth that U.S. self-defense law is uniquely harsh. And Dr. Funk means uniquely harsh uh, compared to other countries, uh, meaning it provides much broader license to kill than you might find in other countries. I don't have a position on that. I don't know anything about other countries' self-defense law. Uh, so I don't care. I don't care about other countries' self-defense law. I only care about American self-defense law. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with American self-defense law, at least in terms of black letter law, how it's applied uh, is often corruptive. Uh, but the, the law itself is good, really, in all 50 states. Um, so I can't really give an opinion on whether the, the, the core theme of this paper uh, has merit or not. I, I have to say, given how sloppy the description of American self-defense law is, I don't have a high degree of confidence that the descriptions of German or Dutch or whatever other countries he's using as a comparison, that the description of their self-defense law is any more robust. So it, you know, it makes me doubt, doubt the, the premise. Uh, but, but I don't know. I don't know what the law is in those other states. Uh, well, I'm also going to look at not all the footnotes, but some of the footnotes here, because I think they provide a context to this paper as well. That's useful. All right. So let's start with the paper. Uh, the ancient right, this is Dr. Funk, of course, the ancient right of self-defense continues to be among criminal law's most controversial and enduring topics. The February 2020 murder of Ahmad Arbery, the November 2021 Wisconsin trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, and the January 2023 shooting of a masked robber in the Houston Taqueria all served to bring to full boil the long-simmering national debate about where the state's monopoly on force should end and the individual's right to rely on self-preferential force should begin. Self-preferential force, that seems an odd phrase. After each of these incidents, members of the legal commentariat followed the familiar practice of swiftly offering their takes on all aspects of these flashpoint cases. Much of what they said about these cases, for good reason, sparked spirited discussion. Let's see how we a couple. Uh, so we already passed by a footnote here. Let me go to footnote two. Footnote, uh, the first footnote is just Dr. Funk's uh, credentials. I already went over those. Footnote two, Cicero famously described self-defense which early philosophers and historians prizes the ultimate pre-legal civil right as a, quote, universal, natural, moral law. Their perspective was that self-defense is timeless, lacks a history, and consequently is incapable of being abrogated. Yes, of course. That's why I refer to it as, as a natural law. It's perhaps the most fundam fundamental natural law there is. All living creatures will defend themselves from attack. Uh, you can't get any more fundamental than that. Uh, let's see. 
He also notes here, uh, footnote three, although there's no unified U.S. self-defense law, the laws of the individual U.S. states are, except where indicated, largely aligned in overall approach. Uh, Dr. Funk, therefore, will throughout this article refer to the singular U.S. self-defense law to refer to the common elements of the laws of the individual states. Now, all of you know how I teach the elements of self-defense. Maybe I'll even hold this in the correct orientation. Um, in my study of self-defense law, I've observed that there are really only a maximum of five elements of any claim in self-defense, and this applies in all 50 states. The, the, the self-defense law across the 50 states is very common, uh, and that's because this is very old law. Um, again, ancient law, but in the American context, our, our self-defense law derives from old English common law, uh, which, of course, all the U.S. states uh, started with when we became a nation. And the, the, the consistency really reflects how old and established self-defense law is. And this is no secret, these five elements, folks. In fact, you can get this cheat sheet for free at lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. It's just a PDF download. We don't charge a penny for it. The five elements are innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. The biggest variance in American self-defense law across the states is that there are about 10 states that uh, apply that element of avoidance listed here. They impose a legal duty to retreat if safely possible before you can use at least deadly force in self-defense. About 40 states don't impose the element of avoidance in otherwise lawful cases of self-defense. So in about 40 states, there's really only four elements of a claim of self-defense in an otherwise lawful case of self-defense. Um, so that's why I say there's up to five elements. Now, it's important because this is one of the the, the places that Dr. Funk gets sloppy in his, in his uh, analysis of self-defense law to note that each of these elements is, is distinct and irreducible. Uh, so what you often see in academic writing is that people will write about the elements of self-defense, but they'll combine elements into one. And that's just sloppy thinking. Um, because, I mean, by definition, an element should be something irreducible. If you combine hydrogen and oxygen, you don't have an element anymore. You have water. The periodic table of the elements is distinct, isolated, individual elements, not further reducible, or, or they wouldn't function as atoms anymore. Um, they're not combinations of atoms. So when I see scholars... Uh, provide their own list of elements of self-defense, but it's obvious they're combining some of these innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. Um, I, I know they haven't really thought it out. And by the way, it's very common to see that even in uh, appellate court decisions, state Supreme court decisions, they'll say, well, we have three elements of self-defense uh, here. And, uh, at, but they don't have three. What they'll do is they'll combine a, a couple of elements, my elements into one of theirs. And, and once you've learned what the five elements really are, it's, it's easy to spot that when you see it so you don't get confused. Uh, but that's an error, a conceptual error that Dr. Funk makes in, in this paper. And uh, we'll talk about that when, when we get to it. All right, so back to the substance. Uh, let's see. There is, however, one disrupting note in the constant drumbeat of lawyers, legislators, academics, reporters, and other observers that is routinely and frustratingly out of sync 
the claim that U.S. self-defense law is exceptionally harsh by international standards and comparatively underappreciative of the value of human life and the need to prevent violence. So what they're saying here is that they want it to be harder for a law-abiding citizen to use force to defend themselves from criminal attack. If that doesn't make any sense to you, I'm right there with you, brother. It doesn't make any sense to me either. Uh, but that's the argument. They consider the person acting in self-defense to be inappropriately using violence, uh, failing to recognize that that defender's use of force is only lawful if they meet the conditions, meaning that they were the innocent victim of an eminent, in some states, unavoidable risk of death or serious bodily injury. So these people are saying, even if all that's true, you should still not be privileged to defend yourself against that attack. I think that's insane, but nevertheless, that's the opposing position. Dr. Fung continues, the problem with this narrative is that it fails to recognize that U.S. self-defense law is, in fact, very much within the international mainstream, and in many respects, is significantly more protective of attackers and more carefully calibrated to reduce overall societal violence than many other nations. In terms of impact, such erroneous claims that U.S. self-defense law is too permissive um, seriously distract from the much-needed law reform debates over U.S. self-defense law's deeper policy and moral grounding. I don't even know what that last sentence means. Um, maybe in, in, in academic circles that this means something, but to me, this is just word salad. All right, next page. Uh, header, the media persistently portrays U.S. self-defense law as overly permissive and insufficiently concerned with preventing societal violence. You know, in order... I'm going to pause right there for a second just to um, make sure I don't get too behind on uh, any super chats and stuff. So again, folks, if you want to pose questions, uh, they need to either be a super chat on YouTube or a rumble rant on rumble $5 minimum. Or if you're a law self-defense member, I encourage you to watch this in the stream on your member dashboard and put your questions there. And then there's no charge. I do ask that you preface your question with the word question in capitals. So it's easier for me to spot. Because unlike YouTube and Rumble, it doesn't, the uh, dashboard doesn't color code things for me. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so there's a comment here from uh, Law Self-Defense member Chuck. I didn't know you and John Korea didn't get along. Uh, I'll talk about that after we get to the, uh, the members-only portion of today's show as well. I'm happy to discuss. I do have a, a standing invitation to debate John Korea on any use of force case uh, he'd like to uh, debate, um, but he won't do it. He will not accept my invitation. It's very, it's very sad. All right. So let's see. Anything yet on uh, YouTube? Not yet. And... Yeah, I don't know why uh, people on Rumble are saying it's glitchy. I don't think that's on my end. Sorry, folks. Nothing I can do about that. All right, so let's continue then with the paper proper. The popular media has made a habit of uncritically portraying U.S. self-defense law as uniquely unforgiving toward the aggressor and out of step with international norms. Consider, for example, Vox, 
Folks, anything written by Vox on self-defense law is hot garbage. So the mere fact that Dr. Funk is citing Vox as an authoritative source or view, respectable view of self-defense law, to me undermines confidence in this paper entirely. Vox is hot garbage, period. Consider, for example, Vox's confident declaration that America's self-defense laws are incredibly permissive, making it difficult to convict someone in a violent situation who claims to fear for their life. No, uh, I guess he links to the paper down here, the actual paper. <laughs> and the title, of course, is uh, of that Vox paper is Kyle Rittenhouse and the Scary Future of the American Right. No, no political bias there, of course. Uh, the New York Times, another reliable source of information, insight, perspective on self-defense law? You think so? I rather, I doubt it. I doubt it. The New York Times, for its part, offers that in the United States, quote, the tendency has been to expand the right to claim self-defense rather than protect those who may be harmed by misjudgments and mistakes. And there's presumably a link there to the uh, New York Times article, which is titled, Can Self-Defense Laws Stand Up? To a country awash in guns, whatever that means. We're certainly a country awash in, awash in guns, and, and thank God for it. Testimony before the U.S. Senate Committee on the Judiciary similarly asserts that, quote, even the Wild West had more stringent laws governing the taking of life than we have now, close quote. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's, a, that's a complete lie. The Wild West laws on self-defense were very similar to, uh, to our modern laws. Um, with the exception that there, uh, there generally there really was no uh, legal duty to retreat uh, in the Wild West era. That that wasn't adopted until last century, uh, as the cities became more liberalized and uh, and and formal police departments were were more became more common. To continue, and a 2021 law review. You remember, remember what I said about law review articles on self defense law, folks. And a 2021 law review argues that any contention that, quote, armed individual self-defense in the United States serves some sound public purpose reflects nothing more than the bravado of the Old West. So uh, the law review thinks there, there ought not be any, apparently, privilege to use uh, armed force in self-defense. I disagree. To give a final example, New York Magazine, another well-known right-wing publication, uh, denounces the, quote, anarchy latent in America's expansive self-defense rights and seeks to make the case that increasingly permissive self-defense laws have created a vast zone of permissible killing. Uh, well, there's not anarchy. Self-defense law is very well-defined under American law by these five elements. It's not even rocket science. It's not 500 elements. It's not 50 elements. At the most, it's five elements. That's that's pretty straightforward. I would hardly call it anarchy. Um, increasingly permissive. I mean, self-defense laws don't change very often. Uh, it's really a very stable area of the law. Now, we need to distinguish between self-defense law and gun law. Gun law changes all the time, and it's highly varied across the 50 states. But self-defense law is pretty stable. Uh, the biggest change we've seen in the last 15 years almost 20 years in America is that uh, a lot of states that had last century adopted a legal duty to retreat states that imposed that element of avoidance have reversed course and gone back to being stand your ground states. So in the last 20 years, um, a whole bunch, 15 states, maybe 
um, have gone from duty to retreat to stand your ground. No state's gone the other way. So, and a lot of states, by the way, are stand your ground states might surprise you, like California. California is one of the most has one of the strongest stand your ground legal provisions in the country. Not only are you allowed to stand your ground, but California jurors are instructed that this defendant claiming self-defense is permitted to pursue his attacker if necessary for safety. I don't know any other state that has that broader provision for stand your ground, but you won't find it in the California statute. California doesn't have a stand your ground statute like about half the stand your ground states California stand your ground law is not found in statute. It's found in court decisions dating all the way back to the 1800s. It's case law. Uh, let's see. To continue, uh, these caricatures, and I would agree with that assessment of those publications, uh, these caricatures have led many to think that in the United States, callous lawmakers and courts deviate dramatically from their international counterparts, announcing an open season on supposed lawbreakers. But are U.S. self-defense laws really exceptionally punitive? As I will establish, U.S. self-defense laws in the main are not only unexceptional, they are in fact more protective of the lives of attackers and calibrated to reduce overall societal violence than many of their international counterparts. Now, again, I, I don't have a personal view on how U.S. self-defense law compares to other countries. Uh, and I have to be honest, again, I, Given how Dr. Funk's kind of loosey-goosey understanding of U.S. self-defense law, I'm not sure his understanding of foreign self-defense law is any more robust. So I, I don't have a lot of confidence in the comparison. Uh, but but I have not looked at the self-defense laws of other nations in any particular depth. All right, next section. Some preliminary observations on context. Let me say at the outset that it is critically important to distinguish between the law of self-defense, that is statutes and court rulings, and the means to defend oneself, that is weapons and firearms. Yes, I agree 100%. That's the distinction I was just making. There's self-defense law, there's gun law. These are two completely different things. Self-defense law is when are you permitted or not to use force in defense of yourself, others' property. Gun law is completely distinct. It's when are you allowed to have a gun or not allowed to have a gun and how many and what size and where can you carry and a magazine capacity and all the, you know, shoulder braces and all that kind of nonsense. Um, I, I believe that all gun laws, all gun laws preemptively applied to law-abiding, mentally sound American citizens are facially unconstitutional. Um, that won't keep the government from putting you in jail if you break one of their gun laws. So do caution. Uh, but gun laws, self-defense laws, two completely different things, often conflated uh, by by sloppy thinkers. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy to see Dr. Funk making that room to debate the precise contours of U.S. self-defense and gun laws, both in public policy and in ethics. Nevertheless, to be meaningful in its aim for social justice. Anytime you put a prefix on justice, it makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. There's justice. If you put a prefix in front of justice, whatever you're talking about is not justice anymore. It's some weird political fabrication. But Dr. Funk writes, nevertheless, to be meaningful in its aims for social justice, the discourse around law reform and arms ownership must be properly informed by the type of defensive violence that U.S. defense law actually sanctions. Well, it sanctions all forms of defensive violence. So I, I'm not sure what he's trying to say here. Uh, there's really only for use of force law purposes, there's only two forms of defensive violence. 
Defensive violence. Doesn't that seem a weird phrase? Defensive violence. I mean, is it really violence if it's legal and defensive or is it just force? Violence has a negative connotation, I would suggest. All right. So um, actually sanctions continuing to understand how U.S. self-defense law stacks up by international comparison. We turn to the laws of Germany and England. Popular scholarship, after all, regularly cites these representative countries as models of sensible, humane, civilized criminal justice systems and suggests that the United States should emulate them. But prior to embarking on this cross-border examination, we must first understand the guardrails. U.S. self-defense law sets around the use of force. So, uh, of course, I talk about this all the time. There's a, uh, there are legal boundaries around the permissible use of force and self-defense. If you're inside those legal boundaries, your use of force is not a crime, even if you've killed that other person. It's simply not a crime. It's lawful self-defense, not a crime. What would have been a murder is not a murder because it was privileged as lawful self-defense. But if you're one inch outside those legal boundaries, uh, you have no claim of self-defense. Self-defense as a legal defense is very binary. It's like a light switch. It's either on or off. You either qualify or you don't. You're either inside the boundaries or you're not. And if you're not inside the boundaries, you have no legal defense of self-defense at all. It doesn't just mitigate uh, or reduce your privilege of self-defense. It's gone. So important to understand that. And of course, we define those boundaries by these five elements of self-defense. Again, you can get this at lawselfdefense.com slash elements. So now, Dr. Funk, this is my biggest area of disagreement with this paper. He gets to the core elements of U.S. self-defense law. But before I jump into that, let me do a quick check again for any questions that might have come in. Let's see. Uh, Law and Self-Defense member John Dobbs asks a question. What is this professor's PhD in? I believe it's a PhD in law, a doctorate in law from Oxford University. That's the big league, folks. Oxford University. I can assure you I do not have any degree from Oxford University. Uh, take a look at the Super Chats. Nothing yet. Uh, let's see. And rumble. Okay. Nothing, nothing substantive at this time. All right. So let's get back to the core elements. Now, again, to remind all of you, I define the core elements of self-defense to their irreducible core elements. Five of these up to five. Innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. Now, let me take this down because I'll provide a, I'll give a brief description of each right now uh, in case you don't already have this PDF download. Uh, so what does innocence mean? Innocence means that you were not the initial physical aggressor in the confrontation. If you start the fight, you can't claim self-defense. Self-defense is obviously intended to uh, justify the use of force by someone who's the victim of an act of aggression. It's not intended to privilege an aggressor to use force. So that's the element of innocence. You are not the initial aggressor in the confrontation. Imminence means that the force, the aggression you're defending yourself against is either actually in progress, you're, you're getting beat or shot at, um, or it's immediately about to occur. The fist is drawn. The gun's being presented against you. Uh, it can't be uh, a past threat that's resolved. They punched you yesterday. 
Uh, it can't be a future. That would just be retribution, right? If you used force today against yesterday's punch, uh, it can't be a threat that's speculative and in the future and may never happen. The guy says, I'm going to go home and get a gun and come back here and shoot you. Well, when he comes back with the gun, he's an imminent threat, but merely telling you he's going to come back later, that's not an imminent threat. It's a threat, but it's not yet an imminent threat against which you can use defensive force lawfully. So a good way to think about imminence is like a window. It opens and it closes. And you can't use force too soon. You can't use force too late and have it be lawful. You have to wait for the window of eminence to open. And then if you're going to use defensive force, you need to use it before the window of eminence closes. So that's eminence. Uh, proportionality has to do with the intensity of force involved in the conflict. And effectively, it means that your defensive force has to be proportional and no greater than the force you're defending yourself against. And for practical purposes in the U.S., we put force into two buckets for use of force law purposes, deadly force and non-deadly force. Uh, generally speaking, you can only use deadly force in self-defense if you're defending against a deadly force threat. Deadly force to deadly force, that's proportional. If you're only being threatened with non-deadly force, you can only use non-deadly force in self-defense. Non-deadly to non-deadly, proportional. If you use deadly defensive force against a non-deadly force threat, you've gone disproportional. You lose the element of proportionality. And for any of these, these elements are cumulative, folks. So uh, they're all required uh, unless they're legally waived for some particular reason, like avoidance is often legally waived. But if any of the required elements are missing, you just don't have self-defense because you're, you're missing, obviously, a required element. So that's proportionality. Avoidance is the most commonly waived of these elements. Uh, avoidance has to do with whether or not there's a legal duty to retreat if safely possible before you can use usually deadly force and self-defense. Only about 10 states impose this element of avoidance in otherwise lawful acts of self-defense. Now, if your claim of self-defense is, is defective somehow, you might reacquire a legal duty to retreat, even in a stand-your-ground state. Uh, also, a lot of stand-your-ground uh, provisions are, are conditional. You have to meet certain conditions to qualify to stand your ground. So you do need to be cautious about that. But there's only about 10 states that um, impose a generalized legal duty to retreat uh, before you can use force in self-defense. And finally, reasonableness. And reasonableness is really a, a two-faceted element because there's subjective reasonableness and objective reasonableness. And subjective has to do with whether or not uh, you have a genuine good faith belief in the need to act in self-defense. You have to have that. Otherwise, if even you don't think it's self-defense, it's obviously not self-defense. But that belief also has to be objectively reasonable. It can't be irrational. Uh, a hypothetical, reasonable, improved person would have agreed or would have shared that subject of belief in the need to act in self-defense. An irrational perception to act in self-defense just doesn't fly because something that's irrational is not reasonable, right? Makes sense. So those are the distinct, irreducible five elements of self-defense as I've found them in the self-defense law of every U.S. state um, without fail, every U.S. jurisdiction, territory, everything, America. Even the uniform uh, a code of military justice has the same basic five elements framework if you know what to look for. Now, of course, there, if you look at a self-defense statute, it's, off, it's typically not structured in five elements. But once you know what the five elements are, you'll find them in whatever self-defense law you look at in the American context. So those are those five elements. So let's see now 
how Dr. Funk approaches the five elements of self-defense. And I, I would suggest he engages in a, in a common failing in understanding self-defense law. So the core elements of U.S. self-defense law. U.S. self-defense law generally requires the following, with, as noted, some differences among states. Uh, the state's burden of proof. All right, well, the burden of proof is not an element of self-defense. It's just not. It's, it's not how self-defense is defined. The scope, the legal boundaries of self-defense are defined by these five elements. The burden is, well, who bears the burden of proving or disproving these elements? But it's not, the burden's not an element of self-defense itself. Uh, it's completely different. It's like, what are the components of a car versus who's the driver? Uh, two completely different things. It, it's still a car, regardless of who's driving it. Uh, the elements are the same, regardless of who ha might have the burden. Um, and until recently, uh, historically, it was common for the defendant to have the burden to prove self-defense. Uh, and until a few years ago, Ohio still placed the burden of self-defense on the defendant to prove self-defense by a preponderance of the evidence. Uh, fortunately, Ohio has uh, joined the majority of states, well, all the rest of the states, um, because over the last 50, 100 years, the states have gradually all moved to placing the burden on the state to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And now Ohio has joined the other 49 states, so now that's the common practice everywhere. Uh, so the state's burden of proof, though formally an affirmative defense, no, it's not formally an affirmative defense. I hate the phrase affirmative defense because it's become corrupted. Uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, uh, affirmative defense had a, that phrase had a common technical meaning in all 50 states. Uh, it meant two things. It meant that the defendant had the burden of injecting the defense into the case in the first place. The defendant had to raise the defense. They had to say, hey, hey, hey sure, I shot that guy, but I did it in self-defense. Self-defense is my legal defense. If they don't raise it, it doesn't exist in the legal argument in the courtroom. Uh, and that's still the case today, that we call that the burden of production. You have to produce some prima facie, some minimal evidence in support of a claim of self-defense to be able to argue self-defense in the first place. You don't have some magical right to argue self-defense. Not everything is self-defense. Uh, in particular, if there's zero evidence on one of the required elements, then, then it can't be self-defense from a strictly technical perspective. Remember, the jury is going to decide these elements if they believe these elements have been proven or, or disproven. If there's zero, and all the jury does is consider evidence. That's the role of the jury, to consider facts. If there's zero evidence for the jury to consider, well, the element doesn't exist for legal purposes. And if it's a required element, it doesn't exist. What you did can't have been self-defense. So the first thing you have to do as a defendant is meet your burden of production, show that there's at least some evidence for each of the required elements of self-defense to be able to argue self-defense in the first place. An affirmative defense was traditionally one in which the defendant not only had to do that, inject the issue into the argument in the first place, but then also had the burden of persuasion, the burden of proving the defense, usually by a preponderance of the evidence. So traditionally, that's what affirmative defense meant. You had the burden of production to get the legal argument into court in the first place, and you had, as the defendant, the burden of persuasion to prove the defense as well. And self-defense was traditionally an affirmative defense, where if you claim self-defense, you had to meet your burden of production on self-defense and your burden of persuasion on self-defense. You had to prove self-defense. 
But as I just mentioned, all the states have now moved away from putting the burden on the defendant, and the burden is now on the state to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. So self-defense as a legal defense doesn't fit the traditional definition of affirmative defense anymore. So what happened? Well, a bunch of states said, well, self-defense is no longer, we're not going to call self-defense an affirmative defense anymore because it doesn't fit the old definition. Okay, great, perfect, that's reasonable. So the, the definition of affirmative defense remained the same. An affirmative defense is one where the defendant has the burden of production and the burden of persuasion, but they removed self-defense from that definition of affirmative defense. Perfectly reasonable. Self-defense is no longer an affirmative defense. Other states said, you know what? We're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to change our definition of affirmative defense and leave self-defense within the new definition. Well, that's, that's also a logical way to go about this. Um, the trouble is now the phrase affirmative defense means different things in different states. In some states, it means uh, that both the burden of production and burden of persuasion are still on the defendant. In other states, it doesn't mean that anymore. Now, this is not a problem if you're in a conversation only with people from one state. If everyone's from the same state, they're using the same definition of affirmative defense and nobody gets confused. But in any conversation with people from multiple states, like, like this right now, um, everyone is, if you use the phrase affirmative defense, each individual doesn't know that it means something different to other people, but, but in fact it does. And that only creates confusion. So sorry for that long-winded diatribe on the phrase affirmative defense, but I just don't use it. I don't think it's helpful anymore in the modern context. Uh, let's see. Um, though formerly an affirmative defense, once a defendant introduces evidence supporting a self-defense claim, that's the burden of production, the prosecutor must disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the modern standard in all 50 states. And now we get to the actual elements as described by Dr. Funk in conflict with how I do it. Availability of self-defense. A person in the United States may only rely on the self-defense justification if the following are met. Remember my elements. Irreducible, innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. Each is treated separately. How does Dr. Funk do it? The first of his elements are the attack. The person subjectively believed he was facing an actual unlawful attack. This is already conflating two elements. It's conflating, um, well, well, it's really conflating three elements. It's conflating innocence, that they're not the attacker, that they're being attacked. It's conflating subjective reasonableness, and I would argue it's conflating objective reasonableness. So you do need to be the non-aggressor. You do need that element of innocence. But whether or not your perception of events is genuinely held in good faith is subjectively reasonable is, is a different question. Those are two different questions. One could be true and the other not. So conflating them this way into one element called the attack, uh, it's not just the attack. It's one question of, are you being attacked as opposed to you being the attacker? That's the element of innocence, this subjective belief and whether or not, by the way, the attack on you doesn't have to be actual. You don't have to be correct in your assessment of the need for self-defense to be lawful. You could be wrong. It happens all the time. The, the attack you're defending yourself against doesn't need to be real. It doesn't need to be actual. 
It only needs to be reasonably perceived. You are allowed to make mistakes in self-defense. You're not required to make perfect decisions in self-defense. You are required to make reasonable decisions in self-defense. That's why it's a distinct element. So again, we start right from the start with Dr. Funk conflating a bunch of distinct legal questions into one element he calls the attack. Let's move on to his other elements. Necessity. The person subjectively believed the amount of force used or threatened was necessary to prevent or terminate the interference, the, the act of aggression on them. Again, we're conflating different things. So here we have a subjective belief. That's reasonableness, right? The subjective part of reasonableness. And then we have the amount of force. Well, the amount of force is a different legal question. You might have a subjective belief that you need to defend yourself. That could be true. But you make a mistake on the amount of force. That's proportionality. Whether you're being attacked with non-deadly force or deadly force. Deadly force being force likely to cause death or serious bodily injury. You could have a subjective belief in the need to act in self-defense, but then go disproportional, use too much force. So subjective belief could be fine, but you lose proportionality, you lose self-defense because you went disproportional. It's a distinct legal question. And again, he's conflating subjective belief, reasonableness, the element of reasonableness with the element of proportionality. Uh, in parentheses, Dr. Funk writes, the underlying principle of being that all human life, even the life of a violent criminal, is valuable and worthy of protection, except when the defender has no option but to resort to defensive force. No, this is, this is a misunderstanding. So it's why I don't have as one of my elements necessity. Necessity. What is necessity? What does that even mean? You always have an option not to use force, Right. Under American self-defense law, a woman who's being subjected to a violent rape is legally privileged to use deadly force to defend herself against that attack. But is it necessary? I mean, did she really have no option? She could have allowed herself to be raped, right? You could allow yourself to be a victim of an armed robbery. You could allow your, your, your home to be pillaged by intruders. So I, I don't like the use of, of the phrase necessity because it's extremely subjective. And it's, it's never really, you could allow yourself to be shot in the head rather than shoot your attacker, right? You, that, that, that's a choice you can make. I don't recommend it. But could someone argue, you know, it wasn't really necessary for that woman to shoot her rapist. It wasn't necessary. He, he wasn't going to kill her. She took a life. He wasn't going to take a life. I don't know about you, but I, I find that line of reasoning disgusting. So no, it's not necessity. Uh, objective reasonableness. Uh, the person was objectively reasonable in, in his or her belief, even if mistaken, like we just talked about, that defensive force was necessary to thwart the attack. Uh, and uh, another non-universal safeguard, another non-universal safeguard limiting defensive violence. I don't know what that means. Um, but this is a good description of objective reasonableness. I don't, I don't see any reason to, uh, to me, it makes more practical sense, pragmatic sense to put the objective and subjective facets of the mental state uh, into one element, which is obviously why I do that. But in terms of defining objective reasonableness, that's a good um, definition. Uh, timing imminence. The attack was either ongoing or imminent. Yeah, that's a good definition of imminence. I'm with him there. Uh, but you can see throughout this, he, he uses four elements, but at least the first uh, two of his four 
are actually conflating distinct legal questions into, into groups. Uh, and that makes for, that's just sloppy. That's sloppy. They're not irreducible. They could be further broken down to irreducible elements. Uh, he continues, as we will see, the basic elements are entirely within the international mainstream. What is more, they are significantly more protective of life. Now, when he says more protective of life, he means more protective of the attacker's life, not the defender's life. What is more, they are significantly more protective of the attacker's life than the self-defense laws of England and Germany and many other jurisdictions. Okay, I'll do another quick look for questions before I go on to the next section. Uh, let's see. Uh, Kyle, law self-defense member Kyle says, so this dude suggesting we need to look at the land of Nazis for our template. I, I don't think that's what he suggested, Kyle. And yes, I, I know you didn't mean me. Um, law self-defense member John writes, reducing the ability of self-defense is done to control the population. This is how socialism works in part to control the population. Reduce self-defense means the population cannot fight back from tyranny. Uh Law self-defense member Kyle writes, according to Tarrant County, Texas, you can't make mistakes either. That's Aaron Dean, the Aaron Dean trial. Uh, let's see. Uh, Al from Boulder, law self-defense member writes, I had Marcus Funk as a professor at CU Law for FCPA. Is that a financial thing? Credential? I don't know. Seemed like a good guy. Uh, by the way, I, I don't mean to be personally critical of Dr. Funk either. This, again, this is not a terrible paper, uh, but it, it's it's sloppy in ways I find common in the uh, legal literature, the scholarship on self-defense law. So I'm, I'm just using it as an example of how things can get sloppy. Um, I'm sure he's a great guy. He's certainly unbelievably well-credentialed. Uh, he's uh, uh, served his country as a prosecutor and in the State Department, uh, Awesome. Awesome dude. As far as I know, I've never met him. Uh, and, but I certainly don't mean anything personal uh, against Dr. Funk here. I'm just critiquing the paper based on my, my own expertise on self-defense law. Okay. Let's check for super chats. Uh, Brian, $5 super chat. Thank you very much. Writes uh, don't quote the natural laws to Branca. He was there when they were written. Maybe. Maybe if you believe in reincarnation, I suppose uh, perhaps I was there when they were written. Um, and Rumble Rant, 63 Telecaster, $21. He writes, put some gas in your GS. You know, riding season is almost here. Probably, you know, uh, the, the mountain passes should be getting, starting to clear up uh, like the, I mean, some of them, the bigger ones, like, um, well, the bigger ones with, with highways will start clearing up this month, hopefully, or at least it'll be plowed out. Um, and then the fun ones, late April, May. But I expect to be uh, back on the motorcycle trips within the next uh, two to three weeks. Thank God. That's the worst part of uh, winter's tough, man, if you're a motorcycle rider. Winter is tough and uh, you're a motorcycle rider, and you're lucky enough to live in uh, mountainous terrain. Uh, if, if there's mountains, 
and there's winter, the mountains close. That's just the way it is. I guess I could live in Florida, but that's pretty boring driving, riding. All right. So back to the paper, back to the paper. Here we go. Uh, now, I, I might skip over a bunch of this uh, when we get to the other countries, because I don't, I don't know the other countries' laws. I don't know if Dr. Funk knows the other countries' laws, really, based on how he you know, frames U.S. self-defense law. Uh, but we'll see how we go. So next section, U.S. self-defense laws, objective reasonableness requirement, limits interpersonal violence. Every one of these elements limits interpersonal violence. Well, permissible, lawful, privileged interpersonal violence. Obviously, bad actors are just violent whenever they feel like it. We're talking about self-defense. Every one of these elements is a constraint, a guardrail on your privilege to use force and self-defense, right? If you violate any of these, you don't have self-defense. If you were the initial aggressor, if you're defending against a non-imminent, a past or speculative future threat, if you use disproportional force, if uh, you had you violated a legal duty to retreat before you used force, if your use of force was subject, subjectively or objectively unreasonable, violate any one of the required elements, you don't have self-defense. So these are all borders. This is how the 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 line between lawful force and unlawful force is, is drawn. So, of course, all these elements uh, are limitations. That's why when a state goes from duty to retreat, it applies that element of avoidance and it becomes the stand your ground state, removes the general requirement for a legal duty to retreat. What it's doing is it's expanding the scope of Defense of force that qualifies as lawful self-defense. It's removing a constraint. So when a state becomes stand your ground, it's it's expanding the definition of what's permissible use of force in self-defense. Uh, Dr. Funk continues, one of the just discussed bedrock limitations on a person's ability to successfully claim justified defense of force in the United States is that the person's belief that defensive force was necessary to prevent or stop an attack must be objectively reasonable. Yes. So you both have to have a genuine good faith belief in the need to act in self-defense. That's subjective reasonableness, but U S law requires that that belief that subjective belief cannot be irrational. It has to be an objectively reasonable belief. It doesn't have to be correct. So someone points a, 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 an airsoft gun at you that looks like a real gun, and a lot of them do, uh, and you defend yourself against it as if it were a real gun, you shoot and kill that person, then you discover his gun was just a toy. You literally made a mistake in the sense that you thought you were defending yourself against a deadly force threat, but there was, in fact, no deadly force threat. You can't get killed with an airsoft gun. Does that diminish your privilege of self-defense? No because you're allowed to make mistakes so long as they are reasonable mistakes. If a reasonable person would have perceived the airsoft gun as real, you're allowed to defend yourself against it as real. Assuming, of course, you, you did subjectively also believe it was real. Uh, let's see. For a recent example of how objective reasonableness in practice serves to limit a defender's exercise of force, consider a patron's January 2023 shooting of a masked burglar in a Houston taqueria. That's exactly what I was just talking about, right? The taqueria shooter, shooter's gun was fake, but it looked real, and that's enough. Um, but then, then Dr. Funk gets confused. So uh, the real issue for the uh, in the Houston taqueria in terms of objective reasonableness 
is um, would a reasonable person have perceived the gun as real? Everyone in the restaurant did. Uh, so I think that's evidence alone, uh, evidence sufficient that a reasonable person would have perceived it as real. But then Dr. Funk conflates that concept with uh, really the concepts of, of uh, imminence and innocence. He continues, although the first shots were unquestionably justified, the last shots may fall short of the objective reasonableness requirement and could expose the defender to criminal liability. So remember, there were nine shots fired in that event. The first four were fired while the armed robber fired by the defender. While the armed robber was up and about pointing his gun at people, um, then uh, another four shots were fired almost immediately thereafterwards as the defender was falling to the ground. And then when the defender was apparently unconscious on the ground, unmoving, and the defender had removed, had secured the armed robber's gun, the, the defender then fired a ninth shot into the head of the armed robber. That ninth shot's a real problem, um, but not really because of objective reasonableness. That's not really a question there. Uh, it's because th there was no longer an imminent threat would be the defect. Also, arguably, if there's no longer an imminent threat from the other party, you have now become the aggressor in the fight. So the first shots, you were a defender, but that ninth execution style shot, it looks like you're now the initial aggressor and uh, the first fight had ended. You neutralize that threat, and then you continue to use force. So again, Dr. Funk is conflating distinct issues here. He continues, as this brief example demonstrates, the United States' objective reasonableness requirement is eminently sensible if the goal is to reduce interpersonal violence. Yet England categorically rejects it. So the Takaria shooting, the core issue of objective reasonableness, simply it wasn't really in play. Everybody was perceiving the bad guy's fake gun as a real gun. If he had walked in with a, uh, a super soaker, uh, an obviously jar large orange multicolored uh, water gun, uh, and someone claimed they perceived that as a real gun, that would be a question of objective reasonableness. But that's not the legal issue in the Takaria case. The legal issue in the Takaria case is not whether the defender reasonably perceived the fake gun as a real gun. The question in the Takaria shooting is whether the defender continued to use force after the point where there was no longer a threat. And here comes the choo-choo. The choo-choo is coming through Castle Rock. If you can hear it, see if we can let it go. All right, that might be all. Uh, so now he begins his comparison with English law, uh, let's see I'm not sure I'm going to read all of this but I can see he starts talking about Rittenhouse so I'll at least start reading it uh, the header here is English law allows unreasonably mistaken persons facing an imagined attack to cloak themselves in self-defense well I would not favor that rule uh, Dr. Funk continues beginning in the mid-1980s English law in a rather abrupt deviation from the prior standard dropped the objective reasonableness requirement Today, a person claiming self-defense in England need only prove that he or she honestly believed deadly force was necessary to avert imminent death or serious bodily harm. Under this remarkably lax rule, even entirely unreasonable and mistaken beliefs will not stand in the way of a successful self-defense claim, providing those mistaken beliefs are honestly held. Well, again, he's conflating different things, unreasonable and mistaken. Uh, mistakes are fine. 
if they're if they're reasonable mistakes. So I wouldn't I would have phrased this even entirely unreasonable and irrational beliefs. Uh, everything you do in self defense has to be reasonable. Um, we don't want irrational people going around shooting others and and pretending that should be lawful. Uh, to illustrate the real world impact. Oh, this is another big problem I had with Dr. Funk's writing here. To illustrate the real-world impact of this honest belief-only standard, recall embattled, embattled Rittenhouse prosecutor Thomas Binger. Was Binger embattled? Did he look embattled to you? Or did it look like Rittenhouse was the one embattled? Was Binger at risk of going to prison? Bad take, Dr. Funk. Uh, but in any case, Binger... Uh, in his closing arguments, Binger asked the jury repeatedly what a reasonable person would have done in Rittenhouse's position. Would you have gone out after curfew with an AR-15 looking for trouble? Would you have aimed at other people? Would you have tried to use the gun to protect an empty car lot? No reasonable person would have done these things, close quote. Well, this is a big defect in Binger's argument, and um, it's unfortunate Dr. Funk doesn't recognize this. What's, what, what reasonableness applies to is your use of force decision-making, not other things. If, if, if you defend yourself at a convenience store, uh, but you were speeding on the way to the convenience store, is speeding reasonable? Arguably not. Does it have anything to do with your use of force decision-making at the convenience store when you find yourself subject to an armed robbery? Of course not. So it, all these ancillary things the going out after curfew um, with an AR, uh, it, it doesn't matter whether or not that was reasonable or not is irrelevant to the use of force decision-making. These other things, of course, are disputed claims uh, or, or outright false. Would you have aimed at other people? Uh, th that was a disputed fact in the case, whether or not Rittenhouse aimed at other people. That wasn't demonstrably true. Um, and of course, you're allowed to aim at other people. If you're defending yourself, uh, would you have tried to use the gun to protect an empty car lot? There's no evidence that Rittenhouse ever used his gun to protect an empty car lot. Every instance of Rittenhouse use of force was in a defensive capacity, defense of himself. Uh, let's see. So when, when Binger's arguing that all this other stuff was some of it just plainly not true, but all this other stuff was unreasonable. That's completely irrelevant to the self-defense claim. That's not what the element of reasonableness applies to. And it's, it's unfortunate Dr. Funk doesn't recognize the, the, the violence that this characterization does uh, to the, the actual elements of a claim of self-defense. Uh, Dr. Funk continues Prosecutor Binger's near singular focus on the alleged unreasonableness of Rittenhouse's conduct serves to highlight how game-changing England's honest belief standard is. No, it, it doesn't. It's just, it's just not good argument. Uh, in England, the jury would not need to be persuaded of the objective reasonableness of Rittenhouse's asserted belief that deadly force was required to ward off an imminent attack. Um, that's not the argument Binger was making, by the way, in that quoted passage. Instead, Rittenhouse would be entitled to an acquittal if the jury merely concluded that he honestly held his belief. Uh, suffice it to say that it does not take a practitioner with years of in-the-trenches experience to recognize that this honest belief-only standard imposes significant additional burdens on prosecutors. Well, sure. I mean, if the law says even irrational defensive force decisions are lawful, that obviously makes things more difficult for prosecutors. In, in, the, in the Rittenhouse context, by the way, in irrational 
perception might have been when um, when Rittenhouse shot Gage Grosskreutz in the bicep, vaporized his bicep. Uh, Gage, of course, was pointing a gun at Rittenhouse. <laughs> Clearly, self-defense. But if Gage Grosskreutz had been holding a, um, a basketball in his hands and Rittenhouse had said, well, I perceived that basketball as a pistol, Arguably, that would have been an unreasonable, objectively unreasonable perception, an irrational perception. Under American law, he would lose the element of reasonableness. He would lose self-defense. Dr. Funk appears to be arguing here that even that circumstance could be justified self-defense under England law. I'll defer to him. I have not looked in England law. Uh, let's see. Uh, he continues, it removes the object of reasonableness, safeguard, and requires prosecutors to focus their entire energy on the difficult task of disproving defendants' claims about what they were thinking when they say pulled the trigger. Uh, well, no, I mean, he's pretending now like the only target of attack for a prosecutor in England is subjective reasonableness. No, the, the, the other elements are still presumably there. For example, if, if the defendant claiming self-defense uh, was the initial aggressor or used disproportional force or violated a legal duty to retreat, any of those are also targets of attack for self-defense by a prosecutor. All right, next section. Uh, now, I guess we're looking at Germany. U.S. self-defense laws, rejection of deadly defensive force to protect mere property or to ward off minor physical threats protects even a culpable aggressor's life. Uh, now, this was kind of interesting because Germany really does take a different uh, view of self-defense, apparently. More of a... Uh, so, somebody made a Nazi joke earlier, but it's much more of a uh, uh, individual acting as a servant to public policy, general public interest, as opposed to defending themselves or others in the moment. Um an interest in life or an interest in uh, arguably property. Uh, though German self-defense law is in line with the U.S. law in that it requires objective reasonableness, it deviates sharply when it comes to the question of what can be defended. So to put this in context, folks, uh, in the U.S., you can use um, force to defend yourself, other people, or property. And property can be distinguished between highly defensible property like a home or mere personal property, like items, like an unoccupied car, a laptop, just stuff. Uh, in 49 of the U.S. states, you can only use deadly defensive force in defense of life or highly defensible property, like a home or a business or an occupied car. In 49 states, you cannot use ever deadly force in defense of mere personal property absent a threat to persons or a threat to highly defensible property. The one exception is Texas. Texas does have a legal provision, Texas Penal Code 9.42. If you'd like to read it, I would encourage you to do that. You can find it at lawofselfdefense.com slash 942. That provides circumstances under which deadly force can be used in defense of mere personal property in the absence of a threat to persons or a threat to highly defensible property like a home. But Texas is the only exception. Generally speaking, in the U.S., you cannot use deadly force in defense of mere personal property. Uh, let's see, this subheader, only threats of serious injury justify deadly defensive force in the United States. Uh, in the United States, deadly force is only justifiable, justified if the defendant reasonably believed the force was necessary to prevent imminent death 
great bodily harm or other serious bodily injury, including rape or kidnapping. In addition, half of the states consider deadly force justified even to prevent robbery, and in some states to prevent certain inherently threatening and dangerous felonies, as well as sexual assault, burglary, or arson. Now, really, really all states allow for that. That's all considered deadly force. So, you know, robbery, um, that's a threat to persons. That's not like burglary is a threat to arguably, you know, theft, say, shoplifting. Uh, that's the threat to property. Robbery is you're threatening an individual, a human being with uh, force to compel them to give up their property. So that that's a threat to persons. It's not really a threat to property. We may think of robbery as a property crime, but it's, it's really not because a person's being threatened. And of course, uh, while sexual assault, we have to be careful about because now these days we have like 80 degrees of sexual assault. You look at somebody wrong and they call it sexual assault. But certainly what we would traditionally call rape, forcible, violent rape, that's, that's a deadly force offense everywhere against which deadly defensive force can be used everywhere in the U.S. Uh, burglary. We often think of burglary as a um, property crime, uh, but it's, it's always been treated as a really for use of force law purposes as a, a crime against persons, um, especially because the, the risk of the burglar encountering um, a homeowner inside the home and then violence resulting um, is so apparent and real that we treat burglary um, as a um, as a threat to person's offense. And some states explicitly say, hey, you can use deadly force in case of burglary to stop a burglary. New York State does that, for example. Um, most states, they're, they're still going to look for a proportional uh, threat, but many states create a legal presumption that an intruder, a forcible intruder in your home, uh, you know, they broke something to get in, um, pre is presenting a deadly force threat. So you don't, you don't have to prove it. It's presumed to be the case. Uh, in the context of a, a forcible burglary. Arson, we might think of arson as a threat to property crime, right? You're burning a building, um, but it's always treated as a threat to person's offense because for use of force law purposes, because the obviously fires get out of control. People are in uh, structures. Uh, they get trapped in the structures and they die. The fire leaps to another structure, and burns those people to death. Uh, so, to, to characterize these as property crimes is a mistake for use of force law purposes. Uh, German law authorizes deadly force to prevent or stop attacks on most legally protected non-trivial interests. Uh, Germany storied self-defense law, specifically section 32 of the German criminal code. I won't pretend to be able to read German. Uh, permits deadly force under a far broader area of circumstances than that permitted in the United States. In fact, German law sanctions the use of deadly force when necessary to protect against attacks on a broad swath of non-trivial legally protected interest, including mere property. Now, again, Dr. Funk doesn't differentiate between highly defensible property like a home and mere personal property like an item. Um, U.S. law does uh, for sure. And there are a lot more privileges to use deadly force in defense of highly defensible property, like a home, a business, an occupied vehicle, than there is for mere personal property. Even in Texas, there's a lot more privilege to use deadly force in defense of highly defensible property than in defense of mere property. The, the non-Texas states um, don't allow any defensive force for mere personal property. Texas allows some if you jump through all the hoops. Um, but really, it's when you're talking about defensive property, you really need to distinguish between highly defensible and mere personal property because they're treated very differently under U.S. law.
he continues, defensive force up to deadly force has also been permitted to defend interests such as one's freedom and honor. Life, well, of course, non-deadly assaults. Interesting. Property. There's a little footnote there. Does he distinguish? No, he's just citing to German law. Again, he's not distinguishing between highly defensible property and personal property. Uh, the right to hunt. The right to engage in religious services. So you can use deadly force. I'm not sure what this means. Defensive force up to deadly force. I think he means including deadly force. Otherwise, he's not really making a point. I mean, it, but that's a weird phrasing. Defensive force up to deadly force could be read to mean stopping before you get to deadly force, right? Up to, but not in. But I think he means deadly force. Uh, home ownership rights. Uh, I don't know what that means in this context. Does he mean defensive, highly defensible property against a forcible intruder? Well, sure, obviously. Does he mean, uh, I don't know, the right to put in a swimming pool if the HOA says you can't? It's a weird, weird way to phrase it. Uh, the right to privacy, for example, persons threatened by an intrusive photographer, peeping Tom or drone, uh, and the right to be free from excessive noise. The right to be free from all you Harley guys out there. Are you listening? Careful in Germany. Apparently they can shoot you for excessive noise. Now we see this weird list of things that uh, Dr. Funk is presenting as very expansive privileges to use uh, deadly force for purposes in defense of things that would not qualify for deadly defensive force under American law. I'm not sure if he's right or not. Again, I'm not going to go read German law. I will say that there certainly are many people in America uh, who would like a broader standard akin to this. Um, I, I run into people all the time who want to be able to use deadly defensive force uh, under circumstances where it's not permitted like to keep their car, their unoccupied car from being stolen, for example. Now, in Texas, you might be able to use deadly force there, but, but in most states, 49 states, you can't. Uh, a lot of people would like to be able to do that. Or a tradesman whose truck, work truck is being stolen with all his, all his tools in it. I mean, I get it. That guy can't pay his mortgage without that truck. It's a big deal. It, it feels like it should be something more than mere personal property, but American law treats it as mere personal property. Perhaps Germany would allow the use of deadly force in defense of that work truck. Uh, let's see. Turn, he continues turning to German Self-Defense's foundation. The traditionally dominant view is that self-defense in the first instance protects the empirical inviolability of the legal order. So you're not just defending yourself or another person or property, your property. Uh, you're defending a more generalized concept the legal order, uh, the protection of the legal order justification, rather than first protecting the individual. Under this view, the exercise of legitimate defensive force protects and preserves the collective legal order and reaffirms the longstanding maximum, maxim that the right, need not, the right need not yield to the wrong. In fact, German self-defense law's harshness derives from this collective legal order justification. In situations of conflict, then, oh, here comes the train again, again. Sorry, folks, only have about another year in this office. Uh, bah, 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 bah. Okay, maybe that's it. 
Uh, in situations of conflict, then, the importance of protecting the legal order has traditionally trumped almost all rights of the attacker. The result was that defenders in Germany could exercise all force necessary to protect their legal rights with little regard for the proportionality or balance of harms. This would be, in the U.S. context, non-deadly force versus deadly force. One 1923 textbook, for example, declared that, quote, one can shoot down an attacker to defend one's ownership of a match. I guess they mean a, like a matchstick. And a 1935 court ruling provided that the defense of a few pennies would justify deadly force. So under American law, if there was like a little pile of pennies on a table and someone just tried to pick them up and run away with them, outside of Texas, at least, you wouldn't be privileged to use deadly force uh, in defense of those pennies. But if you were the victim of an armed robbery, somebody points a gun in your face and says, give me all your stuff, and all your stuff is only a few pennies, what you're really defending there, if you defend yourself, is not the pennies. You're defending you. You're being threatened with personal harm. Uh, in today's Germany, from defensive force up to deadly force is still permitted in circumstances unimaginable in the United States. That said, the post-World War II concept of socio-ethical limits on self-defense did introduce important limits on lawful defensive force. See, this is weird, right? So he quotes from uh, books, 1923, and a 1935 court ruling. Uh, might there be any reason to think that Germany in 2023 might have a different self-defense law structure than Germany in 1920 or 1930? I think there might have been a historical event that occurred. So I don't, I don't, I mean, he's not looking at American self-defense law from a hundred years ago. Why would you look at Germany self-defense law from a hundred years ago to make a comparison, a modern day comparison between the U S and Germany self-defense laws? I, I, I don't get it. But anyway, he writes in today's Germany from defensive force up to deadly force is still permitted in circumstances unimaginable in the United States. That said, the post-World War II concept of socio-ethical limits on self-defense did introduce important limits on lawful defensive force. The appearance of these humane bounds reflected the growing skepticism about individual self-protection. This German law reform, controversial at the time, was animated by the view that the severity or harshness of German self-defense law went too far. Again, he means harshness against the the the, uh, the aggressor in the fight uh, went too far and dramatically undervalued the legally guaranteed minimal solidarity between people that compelled some modicum of tolerance. Whatever. Uh, nevertheless, even with these added restrictions in place, contemporary German self-defense law grants defenders exceptionally wide latitude. Though it is inherently difficult to predict at what point the courts will consider the given defensive conduct grossly disproportionate as a general guideline it is said that one can use potential lethal force to defend property worth more than approximately 100 euros so i'm not sure what this means here if he's talking about really defense of mere personal property uh texas doesn't put a dollar value on the property i mean it can be anything if, if you jump through the requirements of texas penal code section 9.42 uh, it seems weird that, to put a dollar sign on stuff like that. Um, so why why should you be justified? I don't understand the principle under which you'd be justified at killing someone for 101 euros, but not 99 euros. What, what would be the kind of the moral or philosophical distinction between those? I don't get it. I think I think you should be able to 
use deadly force in defense of mere personal property or not. I mean, I could argue both sides of that issue, but it seems weird to put a, a dollar value on it. Uh, continuing, uh, U.S. self-defense law is by comparison uh, far more protective of human life, though reasonable force is permitted to defend both personal property and dwellings. Again, it's a mistake to conflate these two things. Let's see, there's a footnote here, 41, uh, just cites to a bunch of a bunch of cases. It's not very helpful. You'd have to go read all those cases. That's that's a lot of work. Uh, and conflating personal property and dwelling is, is just wrong. Uh, again, 49 states, zero deadly force in defense of personal property at all. Uh, but in defense of dwellings, that's highly defensible property. Most states have much broader uh, provisions for the use of deadly force in defense of highly defensible property, like a dwelling. Uh, so, uh, though reasonable force is permitted to defend both personal property and dwellings in the United States, a defender is never authorized to intentionally kill an attacker solely for purposes of protecting property, as opposed to, for example, preventing the attacker from committing serious crimes in the dwelling. So there he's making the distinction, but he's wrong. He's wrong because he's apparently unaware of Texas Penal Code 9.42. In Texas, a defender is authorized to use deadly force against an aggressor solely for the purposes of protecting even mere personal property if you meet the conditions of the statute, obviously. This is also weird. Intentionally kill. Um, when, when you're using defensive force, the purpose, is, the purpose is not to kill. I mean, you're aware, of course, that deadly force can kill. That's what makes it deadly force. Uh, but the intent is not to kill. The intent is to neutralize the threat, to protect yourself, others, the property from the from the acts of the aggressor, the unlawful acts of the aggressor. Uh, whether or not that aggressor ends up dying uh, is really not part of the calculus. In fact, I would suggest it's probably better for you if they don't die, uh, because if, if they don't die, your your legal liability, potential legal liability, is much reduced. Uh, but killing is not the purpose. The purpose is neutralizing the threat. Uh, sometimes the law allows you to use a degree of force that likely to lead to that person's death, but that's not the point. Their death is not the point. Uh, continuing, uh, providing insight into the humanitarian objective of the limitation, a 1929 U.S. court case put it this way, quote, the preservation of human life from grievous harm is of more importance to society than the protection of property. Um, compensation may be made for injuries to or the destruction of property, but th for the deprivation of life, there is no recompense, and for grievous bodily harm at most, but a poor equivalent. Close quote. Let's see where that is from. 43. It's an Alabama decision, right? So Texas case law would be different. Uh, the person with no option but dead. And by the way, th this is just a public policy choice, Right. 49 states have made the public policy decision that even a thief's life is worth more than the piece of property they're trying to steal. But they don't have to make that public policy choice. They could make the same choice as Texas and say, well, no, I mean, if, if you don't want to die, don't be stealing people's stuff, right? That's the public policy of Texas. And the U.S. Supreme Court has never told Texas you can't do it that way. So if other states wanted to adopt the Texas model, they're free to do that. There's no... There's no U.S. constitutional constraint on that. Uh, continuing, the person with no option but deadly force to protect mere property, therefore, always had to suffer the harm 
to the property, even at the hands of a fully culpable attacker and seek redress at law. You can, of course, by the way, use non-deadly force to defend personal property. That's fine. Um, of course, a, a non-deadly force confrontation may well escalate to deadly force. Um, and then you, then you, if you go to deadly force, you'd have to argue that you were defending something other than the property at that point. Uh, continuing, we may turn back to the Rittenhouse case to appreciate the practical impact of the German rule. The defense in Rittenhouse was required to focus on whether Rittenhouse had been reasonably fearful of death or serious bodily injury. Uh, these questions, in fact, consumed a significant part of the trial. In fact, all of these elements, except for avoidance, because there was no legal duty to retreat for Rittenhouse, even though he was retreating every time, um, all of these, other than the element of avoidance, were actually targets of attack by the prosecution. They argued that Rittenhouse was the aggressor by bringing the rifle after curfew across state lines, which of course is not true, um, that he was not facing an imminent threat, uh, that it was not necessary for him to shoot, that the threat he was uh, faced with was not, and here Dr. Funk is making the point, uh, a deadly force threat, the issue of proportionality, deadly force being a threat of death or serious bodily injury, um, and reasonably fearful, of course, Rittenhouse had to subjectively believe he was believe he was defending against a deadly force threat, which he testified he was, and that belief had to be objectively reasonable, which it certainly appeared to be, and the jury agreed that it was. Uh, quote, in Germany, on the other hand, Rittenhouse would have merely had to persuade the fact finder that his exercise of deadly force was necessary to prevent the attackers from, among other things, robbing, assaulting, or battering him. Well, these are all proportionality questions. Uh, obviously, there's robbery and robbery. You can be a, a strong arm robbery may not involve a threat of deadly force, in which case you, you may not be privileged to use deadly force in self-defense, although most states would still characterize it as a forcible felony, and generally you can use deadly force against a forcible felony. Um, assaulting, assault or battery, assaulting or battering, assault is putting someone in fear of imminent unlawful harm, like you run up with a raised fist, you don't have to touch them. Uh, it's putting them in fear of harm that is a crime, in fear of imminent harm. Uh, and battery is the actual touching, unlawful touching of someone. In that case, you don't have to put them in fear. Running up behind someone, they never see you, you punch them in the back of the head, you just committed a battery. But there arguably was no assault because they were never in fear. Of course, if you run up in someone's view with a raised arm and then you punch them, you may well have committed both assault and battery, which is where we get the phrase assault and battery. Uh, some assault and battery um, is only non-deadly in nature. Someone runs up and gives you a shove, for example, not likely to cause death or serious bodily injury. Normally, would not be privileged to use deadly defensive force against that shove or a finger poke to the chest or whatever. Some Assault and battery is deadly force in nature. Someone's threatening you with a gun. They put you in fear of imminent death with the gun. That's assault, deadly force assault, aggravated assault. Um, and of course, if they shoot you with the gun and cause you injury, now they've caused and committed an aggravated battery, a battery causing death or serious bodily injury. Uh, and against an aggravated assault or battery, of course, you can use deadly force in self-defense. Again, that's a distinction Dr. Funk just, I don't know doesn't note here at all, and it matters. Uh, Prosecutor Binger argued that Joseph Rosenbaum was chasing after the defendant because he wanted to do some physical harm to him, but you don't bring a gun to a fistfight. 
Well, I would suggest you don't bring a fist fight to a gun. And then when you get to the gun, you don't grab for the gun. So this notion that uh, that Rittenhouse in defending himself against Rosenbaum was defending against a non-deadly force fight is ridiculous. Rosenbaum was arming himself with a rifle just as if he had a rifle slung on his back and he was bringing it to bear or there was a rifle on the ground and he was picking it up. Rosenbaum was, when he grabbed for Rittenhouse's rifle, Rosenbaum was arming himself with a rifle for apparent use against Rittenhouse. Even worse, he was doing it in a way that not only armed Rosenbaum, but it disarmed Rittenhouse, right? Taking Rittenhouse's gun from him. That's a deadly force attack, folks. Every day of the week, twice on Sundays. So there, uh, it, it's hard to tell, but it feels like Dr. Funk doesn't just doesn't understand the actual facts or the relevant facts of that confrontation between Rittenhouse and Rosenbaum. That was a deadly force attack. The moment Rosenbaum reached for Rittenhouse's gun and maybe before. Uh, let's see. Um, you don't bring a gun to a fistfight. Such a contention would could carry weight in the United States. But if Prosecutor Binger made this argument in Germany, he would be conceding that a non a non trial attack was in Rittenhouse's future, thereby all but guaranteed a speedy acquittal. This looks like some kind of editing problem here. I don't really understand what the sentence is supposed to mean. But if Prosecutor Binger made this argument in Germany, he would be conceding that a non, I think they mean non-trivial attack, was in Rittenhouse's future. So even a, yeah, I think that's what that's supposed to mean. Non-trivial, just a typo. Um, so a non-deadly force uh, attack. That a non I don't. I, I think Doctor Funk would have to read to make his point. I think he's trying to make the point that under German law, even if Rosenbaum had represented only a non-deadly force attack, Rittenhouse would have been privileged to shoot him. I think he means here he would be conceding that even a trivial attack was in Rittenhouse's future, thereby all but guaranteeing a speedy acquittal. Just some sloppy editing there, I think. But also the reasoning seems questionable. All right. Analogs to controversial U.S. stand your ground and castle doctrine laws are commonplace around the world. Um, approximately one fourth of U.S. states take deadly force off the table when the defender could have retreated in complete safety. Um, well, I would say one fifth, but fine. Uh, but pursuant to the castle doctrine, even those states, even those states do not require such retreat in one's own home or in some states, one's own workplace or vehicle. The remaining states, sometimes labeled stand-your-ground states, do not impose any such categorical duty to retreat. Yeah, so roughly 40 states do not impose a generalized legal duty to retreat before you can defend yourself. And every state has some form of uh, castle doctrine. So you can almost think of castle doctrine as an in-your-home, in-your-highly-defensible-property kind of stand your ground. Um, it's, it's not quite the same as stand your ground. For example, many stand your ground states have conditions that have to be met. Like you can't be engaged in unlawful activity at the time you defended yourself in order to qualify for stand your ground. They don't want street corner drug dealers having stand your ground privileges. They want those guys to have to retreat. Uh, but castle doctrine doesn't have those kinds of conditions. Uh, it has different kinds of conditions. Um, if, if you're in your castle, your highly defensible property, you're defending yourself against an unlawful intruder, uh, you're relieved of any otherwise existing legal duty to retreat. But in many states, if you're defending yourself against 
an invited guest or a co-dweller, um, especially a co-dweller, it's their castle too. They live there too. Uh, the state reimposes a legal duty to retreat. So, so castle doctrine doesn't work to relieve you of your legal duty to retreat. Uh, so they're, they're not quite the same things, but, um, but they, they, the purpose, the underlying purpose is the same, right? Both of them are intended to relieve you of an otherwise existing legal duty to retreat before uh, you can use force in self-defense. Uh, the core argument advanced by those favoring such harder-edged laws, meaning those favoring stand your ground, relieving you of that legal duty to retreat, is that in a liberal society, individuals should have the right to go anywhere they are legally permitted to be because freedom of movement is part of individual autonomy. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not at all um, the rationale for stand your ground. Uh, it's got nothing to do with freedom of movement because stand your ground doesn't say you can go someplace. It merely says you don't have to leave someplace. I mean, if, if you're standing still, you have stand your ground privileges. Even if you're not planning to go anywhere. So it's not a free freedom of movement argument. The, the, the fundamental stand your ground argument is the states that impose a legal duty to retreat. So they impose that element of avoidance. And again, folks, you can get this free cheat sheet at lawofselfdefense.com slash elements, the five elements of self-defense law cheat sheet. It's free. We don't charge a penny for it. Lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. Um, the duty to retreat states that impose the element of avoidance. So they oppose, apply. So they apply all five of these elements. Uh, what they're saying is even if you meet the other four elements, innocence, imminence, proportionality, and reasonableness, if you're missing avoidance, they reserve the privilege to put you in a cage for the rest of your life. So even if you are the innocent victim of an imminent deadly force attack and everything you do is otherwise reasonable, even if you have four, the other four, those five elements, if you're missing avoidance, you go to prison for the rest of your life. That's what the duty to retreat states are saying. The stand your ground states are simply saying, no, no, we're not going to do that. If you are, in fact, the innocent victim of an imminent deadly force attack and you otherwise conduct yourself reasonably, we're not going to put you in a cage for the rest of your life because someone wants to argue that you might have been able to safely retreat. Being the innocent victim of an imminent, unlawful, deadly force attack, acting reasonably, that's enough for self-defense for us. And that's certainly my position. So this is just a complete misunderstanding of, of the underlying policy principles behind uh, Stand Your Ground. Uh, continuing, stated differently, opponents of retreat, re opponents of retreat requirements, like Professor Robert F. Schaup, tend to view sovereignty a categorical, underivative, non-instrumental, and most significantly non-compensable fundamental value. I think these, this is just eggheads with too much free time to come up with crazy theories. The correct underlying principle for stand your ground is what I just shared with you. Uh, without a doubt, stand your ground laws are among the most controversial U.S. legal provisions. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, in the past, I have argued that the values of collective societal violence reduction and protection of the attacker's right to life under certain circumstances outweigh the countervailing values of deterrence and protecting the defender's equal standing and autonomy interest, and therefore justify imposing a conditional 
safe retreat requirements. And there's a footnote. Cracking another paper he wrote, Dr. Funk wrote, cracking self-defenses intractable intractable difficult cases. That's a law review article, Nebraska Law Review. That's what that citation means. Uh, maybe I'll check that out. I don't know. It's probably no better than this paper, really. Uh, but by the way, uh, the the even in duty to retreat states, the 10 or so that are still duty to retreat states, that duty is always conditional. Uh, for example, you're only ever required to retreat if you can do it with complete safety. You're not required to increase your jeopardy in order to retreat. If you can't retreat safely, you don't have the legal duty to retreat. Retreat has to be physically possible. If you're backed against the wall, um, you, you've satisfied your legal duty to retreat. You can't have a legal duty to do something that's impossible to do. Um, so even where there is a legal duty to retreat, a generalized legal duty to retreat, there's always, there's always exceptions. Um, by the way, in, in an otherwise lawful case of self-defense, remember the threat you're defending yourself against. Well, first of all, the duty to retreat is generally only imposed as a condition of deadly defensive force, not non-deadly defensive force. So we're only talking about you're going to a gun, for example, to defend yourself. Um, if you think about what self-defense requires anyway, if you're going to the gun in self-defense, you have to be defending against an imminent deadly force threat. Well, if you're facing an imminent, immediately about to happen or already in progress deadly force threat, how could there possibly be a completely safe avenue of retreat? I mean, what would that even look like? I don't know. Um, but I can tell you that the, the 10 or so uh, duty to retreat states, the prosecutors in those states attack that element of avoidance extremely aggressively. It's their favorite element to attack. Uh, let's see. I think we're, we're on the last page now. Uh, that said, many readers will be surprised to hear that England and Germany also reject a categorical requirement that the defender either avoid conflict or retreat once the conflict is imminent. Again, if, once the threat's imminent, how do you retreat safely? In fact, the same is true for legally, politically, and culturally diverse countries ranging from Argentina, Botswana, Canada, France, and Nigeria to Ghana, Indonesia, Japan, Spain, and Sweden. Uh, maybe because... All those countries have human beings living in them, and maybe human beings have a common interest in being able to defend themselves, their family against criminal predation. I don't know. Continuing, stand your ground. The castle doctrine laws should be subject to debate. Well, fair enough. Debate anything you want. Um, likewise, subject to debate, however, should be the U.S. legal commentary. It's inaccurate suggesting that only the United States permits deadly defensive force when safe retreat is available, or when the defender could have somehow avoided the conflict altogether. All right, wrapping up now. In the final analysis, as this short journey through U.S. and foreign self-defense law has hopefully illustrated, common claims about U.S. self-defense law's exceptionalism and inhumanity crumble under closer scrutiny. One possible explanation for this wholesale misreading of the law by those who should know better, well, often that's just politics, folks, uh, those on the left who hate self-defense slash hate private ownership of guns in America, uh, they misrepresent the law for purely for propaganda purpose. I mean, maybe they're stupid, um, but even if they understood the laws correctly, uh, they'll misrepresent them for propaganda purposes. We see this, of course, particularly in the media when they cover these high-profile trials like Rittenhouse or Zimmerman. Um, they, uh, you read that if you know self-defense law, um, and by the way, you can learn self-defense law at our upcoming Law Self-Defense Advanced Class, Saturday, April 15th. Learn it 
all in one day. LawSelfDefense.com slash advanced. Check it out. Sign up this month and get 10% off. Uh, if you know self-defense law, you read those media reports and those trials, and, and you know they're misrepresenting the law. Now, maybe they're doing it from stupidity, but every time they make a mistake, it's always in the same direction, right? If they decide George Zimmerman or Kyle Rittenhouse is a bad guy, every mistake they make about the law is favorable to the prosecution and unfavorable to the defendant. Isn't that weird that the mistakes aren't kind of random going in both directions? Uh, let's see. Um, one possible ex let's see. I'll start again. Uh, as this short journey through U.S. and foreign self-defense law has hopefully illustrated, common claims about U.S. self-defense law's exceptionalism and inhumanity crumble under closer scrutiny. One possible explanation for this wholesale misreading of the law by those who should know better is that in addition to an over-reliance on uncritically accepted received wisdom, Dr. Funk, mirror, mirror on the wall, there is a pervasive tendency to conflate access to deadly force via firearms, that's gun law, with the legal authorization of the same. I think he means legal authorization of the use of the means of self-defense. And that's true. That happens all the time. People conflate use of force law with gun law. I mean, I get invitations to speak on gun law all the time. I claim no particular expertise in gun law. My expertise is use of force law. They're completely different buckets of law. But whatever the explanation for the persistent oversights, oh, I'm sure it's just an accident, Dr. Funk, not, not politically or propagandistically motivated at all. Um, whatever the explanation of the persistent oversights, the reality is that U.S. self-defense law is very much within the mainstream of self-defense law around the globe and in crucial respects is far more restrictive than that of many overseas counterparts. Ultimately, such impactful misconceptions distract us from having a more fully informed debate about the appropriate role of and justification for self-preferential deadly force in a modern democratic nation. Correcting such fallacies then is a vital first step towards a more balanced and promising conversation about criminal justice reform in a pluralistic society like ours. I think Dr. Funk over generously assumes that um, the, the other parties uh, arguing these issues are arguing in good faith. They're often not folks. All right. And that, that is the entire, entire paper by Dr. Funk. The title of the paper, again, uh, being uh, the title being Busting the Durable Myth that U.S. Self-Defense Law is Uniquely Harsh. It was published last month. I meant to cover this last month, but then I got tied up in the Murdoch trial. But the link to this paper is in the description. So if you'd like to download the PDF of that yourself, please feel free to do that. It is a it's a publicly accessible paper, so there's no there's no copyright problems here. Uh, a reminder, Saturday, April, and then I'll get to questions, folks. Uh, Saturday, April 15th, our one day, all day, taught live by me personally. Law self-defense advanced class teaches you how to be hard to convict, how to be an unattractive target for prosecution. If you're ever compelled to use force in defense of yourself, your family, your property, uh, taught live, stream to you, plenty of opportunity for Q&A. If you can't make Saturday, April 15th, I still suggest you sign up because this is the only one of these classes scheduled for 2023 uh, sign up anyway even if you can't make it saturday because we will give everybody who's signed up for the cars um access to the playback recording of the course so you'll you'll be able to watch the playback even if you can't make the live show uh, and if you sign up for that this month the month of march you get 10 percent off your registration 
I urge you to go to lawselfdefense.com slash advanced, even if you're not sure yet, because we have a, a video there of me talking through, I think it's more than 100 specific use of force law questions we answer in the course of the day. So you'll have a sense of what we plan to cover again. Uh, and then hopefully you will sign up at lawofselfdefense.com slash advanced. By the way, you can also sign up for another person. Uh, when you, when you sign up, obviously you need to put your own information in to pay for the class, but you can put another student's name, uh, in there as a gift to somebody else. If you have loved ones who, uh, you think could benefit from this class and really all of us could. So again, that's our law self-defense advanced course, learn more, register, save 10% at lawselfdefense.com slash advanced. Also don't forget our best-selling book, the law of self-defense principles. It's kind of the advanced course in book form, except of course it's it's not live; it's a book, uh, so you don't have the like Q and A opportunities that the live course has. The plus side is the book is free, so check it out on Amazon. More than twelve hundred reviews. I think it's I keep saying it's five star rated. I think technically it's like four point eight star rated. Close enough. I round up. Uh, bestseller in Amazon's criminal law segment, uh, but don't buy it on Amazon. They'll charge you for the book and shipping and handling. I'll give you the book. I only ask that you cover the cost of getting the book to you. The book itself is free. You can get this book at lawselfdefense.com slash free book. And if you'd like the very handsome hardcover edition, of that book makes a wonderful gift. Folks, Father's Day is coming up. Um, you can get the hardcover of that same book, Law of Self-Defense Principles at you know where lawofselfdefense.com slash get hard. All right. So let's turn to questions, questions. Uh, yes. Uh, Law self-defense member Robert says, Andrew, it appears that under German law, you could go after that train for blowing its horn. That would be interesting. I'm not sure uh, nine millimeter gold dot is going to do much to a train. Let's see. Oh, I got a bunch of questions here. Um, Law self-defense member Kyle. Uh, question re-proportionality. How does disparity of force figure in? A dude throws down on me. I'm likely to respond in kind. But in this example, the same dude comes up my five foot, three inch wife or daughter. So the question for the element of proportionality is always the same. Is the nature of the attack one likely, reasonably foreseeable? to cause death or serious bodily injury. Uh, so maybe if you're a healthy, strong, young male and you're, you're subject to a, a fist fight by one attacker, maybe that's a non-deadly force attack because you can defend yourself against it. It's one-on-one, -on -one, you're healthy, you have reasonable fighting skills. Uh, arguably, that would be a non-deadly force attack against which you're using non-deadly force in self-defense. What if you're facing four attackers of similar size, strength, and fighting ability to you? We, is that now an attack that's likely to inflict death or serious bodily injury? Yes. So there your argument would be uh, under the element of proportionality. Now I'm facing an attack likely to inflict death or serious bodily injury. That's a deadly force attack. And I'm privileged to go to deadly force in self-defense. Uh, the same with um, a large male attacking a small female, right? That's different than a large male attacking a large male. Uh, that large male's attack is likely to inflict death or serious bodily injury on the smaller female or on a child. So there, there's, there's a variety of ways you can get to the attack is likely to inflict death or serious bodily injury. They, they might have a deadly weapon. That would be an easy way to get to that point. 
or there could be a disparity of numbers. There could be a disparity of size, strength, or fighting ability, or it could actually uh, be the inverse of that. The victim could be exceptionally vulnerable to death or serious bodily injury. So you could be on blood thinners, for example. So the, the punch that might be non-deadly force to someone who is healthy is deadly force when it comes to you. So there's, there's a number of ways you can get to the deadly force side of proportionality, but the, the core question is always the same. Is the nature of the attack such that it's likely, reasonably foreseeable, to inflict death or serious bodily injury on the defender, on the target? Uh, let's see. When did this start? It started almost two hours ago. Text pro Pam. Uh, I did send an email out. Sorry. And put it on Twitter. Those are the, the usual things we do. I even put it on Instagram today. I'm, I rarely use Instagram, but I'm trying to be better about that. Apparently that's what the cool kids use is Instagram. Uh, Oh, FCPA, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. That was the uh, fellow who had uh, Dr. Funk as a professor. Interesting. Interesting. I'm not, I'm not actually familiar with that. But uh, Law Self-Defense member John writes, Maine allows the use of deadly force for arson under certain situations. Yeah, uh, just about every state will allow deadly force to prevent arson, of a, certainly of an occupied dwelling, because that's really an, a, a deadly force attack on persons, right? The persons inside the dwelling. Uh, but but not retribution for arson. So you see the person pouring gasoline around the foundation and taking a lighter out of their pocket. Generally, you can use deadly force to stop that person from setting the building on fire. If you're late, you don't have your gun on you. You got to go run and find it and load it up. And by the time you get back to the window, that same person has set the building on fire and is now running away. No, no more privilege. That window of eminence has closed. You're not preventing an arson anymore. The arson's already happened. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, Law self-defense member Tax Pro Pam says, could battery with bodily fluids be considered a deadly force event? Uh, well, it becomes a fact question, right? Did, did you have reason to believe the bodily fluid uh, was likely to inflict death or reasonable, bod reasonable bodily injury? Um, it, it can be a difficult fact question. I mean, if it's just like someone spit. I mean, maybe, I mean, do you know, do they, do you know this person? You know, they have hepatitis, you know, they have AIDS. Um, then I think you would have a pretty strong argument. Uh, but if you don't know that, if you're just speculating about a possible risk, that becomes much more difficult to argue effectively. Uh, let's see. Uh, Law self-defense member A. LOL Cat writes, uh, read the popcorn theater shooting. The, that would be the Curtis Reeves case. Uh, cell phone throw guy in Florida that was acquitted. So Curtis Reeves was an elderly retired cop in a movie theater. Uh, he got into a confrontation with uh, uh, a, um, a patron sitting in front of him, a much larger younger man. Um, and uh, Curtis Reeves ended up shooting that man. Now, what did that man do? Curtis Reeves said, well, he stood up, he loomed over me. Um, he grabbed my popcorn from me and threw it back at me. And then he threw an object at my head. Um, and I think it was now, I think it was a cell phone, but in the moment I believed I was under imminent attack by someone much younger and stronger than me. 
subjecting me to a reasonably foreseeable risk of deadly force harm. So I shot him in the chest and killed him. And uh, Curtis Reeves was acquitted in that case. Uh, let's see. That's all. That's all the law self-defense member questions. Let me reload uh, YouTube. Check for super chats. Uh, looks like nothing new there. Quiet, quiet super chat today. And let me see if I can uh, rumble rants. And no new rumble rants. All right, you folks are going to let me out of here within uh, just under a two-hour limit. So, folks, uh, we are back. The, the murder murder trial is over. Oh, I did promise. Uh, if any law self-defense members have uh, questions about the murder trial, I will hang out on the uh, member dashboard a few minutes longer just with you. Uh, for everyone on YouTube and Rumble and Twitter, we're approaching the end of the show. Uh, I'm going to shut down those streams. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. We're back to our kind of our normal content. Now that the murder trial is over, we'll do shows most days of the week uh, on various use of force uh, topics, events, scholarly papers like we did today, court decisions, and so forth. Um, but just about every show, there'll be a portion that is only for law self-defense members, 30 cents a day to be a law self-defense member folks. So you might consider that. Uh, also we have content that's exclusively for law self-defense members. You can learn more about becoming a law self-defense member at lawselfdefense.com slash join. So for the, uh, for the non-member streams, I'm going to start shutting those down. I just remind all of you that if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun. So I'm hard to kill. So my family is hard to kill. And you also owe it to yourself and your family to know the law so you're hard to convict. Law of self-defense members, don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Everybody else, until next time, I remain attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe. Okay, so we should we should still be on for the law self defense members. Let me see if that worked okay. Uh, looks like I'm a little it's a little behind. So uh, this would be the time to put your uh, yeah, it looks like it's still working. Uh, put your Murdoch Alec Murdoch questions uh, in the chat if you want. Um, I would caution that unless you actually watched every minute of the trial like I did, it's almost certain that you have uh, serious misconceptions about the trial uh, because there's been a lot of misrepresentations of facts uh, in the media, in the various documentaries that have been done about the case. Uh, I, I should also mention that as far as I'm concerned, Alex Murdoch is a huge shitbag who almost certainly deserves to be in jail for the rest of his life, if only for the financial crimes. But that's a different question than whether or not he murdered his wife and son. Um, and I, I would caution against poor reasoning here. The, the legal question in this case is whether or not he viciously murdered the wife and son that every, even state witness in a position to know in the trial said he loved and adored. Not whether he lied about stealing money or about whether he stole money or about whether he's a drug addict. Um, and I think I would caution everybody against... Uh, simply coming to a conclusion of whether 
And the question is not whether he's innocent, right? The question is not, uh, the question, the legal question is whether the state has proven him guilty of the murders beyond any reasonable doubt. And that decision is supposed to be arrived at without emotion. And a lot of people have gotten very emotional about this case. And emotion and legal analysis do not go together well, folks. So if you're making emotional decisions, that leads to all kinds of reasoning errors. It leads to because you want him to be guilty of these murders because he's not a likable guy. He's a very dislikable guy, right? Uh, you want him to be guilty of these murders. Uh, it leads to uh, confirmation bias, a lot of confirmation bias. So confirmation bias, of course, is uh, when there's a question you're facing uh, and there's a, a bunch of evidence in on the side of your preferred answer, what you want the answer to be. And then there's a bunch of evidence on the other side against your preferred answer. And your brain works in such a way that you, you, you only see the evidence that's favorable to your position. In fact, it's, it's glowing. It's on fire. It's so obvious. And the evidence that's contrary to your preferred outcome becomes invisible. You simply can't, see it and and you know, it's the way people normally function um, but if you're going to do proper disciplined legal analysis you you have to be able to see all the evidence and, and place all that evidence in, in its appropriate context another big error uh, in addition to confirmation bias i see people engaging in is is what can i call it speculation uh, and one flavor of speculation is mind reading they, they simply believe that Alec Murdoch did things for some imagined reason. Now, the reason, it could be the real reason, but in the absence of evidence, it's speculative. It's imaginary. And conclusions in a court of law are only supposed to be arrived at if they're based on evidence. It doesn't necessarily need to be a lot of evidence, but it needs to be more than zero evidence. Um, a verdict arrived at based on Evidence-free speculation or imagination or mind reading is not a just verdict, folks. That, that's nothing but a witch trial. And I see a, a lot of people coming to conclusions based on speculation, especially in this trial, layers and layers and layers of speculation. Now, you are, as a juror, for example, we're playing the role of a hypothetical juror, of a juror, you're allowed to make reasonable inferences from evidence, even circumstantial evidence. Um, but you, you're not supposed to make inferences, leaps forward from speculation, from evidence-free speculation. And what I saw a lot of here, especially in the state's closing argument, was layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of evidence-free speculation. And then he concludes that, well, therefore, Alex Murdoch must be guilty of murdering his, his wife and son. That's not the way it's supposed to work, folks. Um, and again, there was a lot of evidence contrary to guilt that simply became invisible to people. They, they, they refused to see it. They're unable to see it, emotionally unable to see it, uh, because they want Alex Murdoch to be guilty. They want to believe he murdered his wife and son. Um, there, were, there were other errors, too, reasoning errors. Um, oh, uh, another big one maybe the biggest one is uh, people are looking at a piece of evidence and making an inference from it of guilt, but they're failing to take into consideration, 
excuse me. Whether the underlying fact that they're basing their inference of guilt on, whether it's material. And what makes a fact material is that it makes one or more factual conclusion more likely. So an example here would be, uh, so we have the lie, the big lie, right? Alex Murdoch says he wasn't at the dog kennel in the, um, the dog kennel video. We all know what that is. <clears throat> but of course, he was caught on the, the, the dog kennel video being there. Um, and therefore, because he lied about that, and even jurors that have been interviewed after the, after the trial have made a big deal out of that. Uh, oh, he he lied about being at the dog kennel. That that was like one of the most important factors in their deciding he was guilty of murdering his wife and son. Uh, but the question to me is, <clears throat> well, is that a material lie? Because we're not trying to distinguish between Alex Murdoch was at the kennel and Alex Murdoch was in California. That would be a material distinction. If he was in California, he couldn't possibly have committed the killings. If he was at the kennel, he had the opportunity to commit the killings. <clears throat> but in this case, that's that's not the two fact options here. The two fact options are either he was at the kennel or he was at the house a short distance away. And, and, and those two are not a material distinction on the legal question of whether or not he murdered his wife and son. He could have just walked over from the house, driven over from the house. It only takes a couple minutes. So whether he's at the house or, or at the kennel is not a material distinction. We also, of course, have this, what I consider ridiculous presumption about time of death. That when, when the son and wife, the last moment they use their cell phones is the moment they died. <clears throat> we don't know that. There's no reason. There's no reason to believe that. You can choose to believe that if you want, but it's it's speculative. There's no evidence to support that. I've been doing this live stream for two hours and five minutes. I haven't used my, my cell phone in that entire time. Does that mean I died two hours and five minutes ago? I mean, it's a ridiculous proposition. I mean, it, it's, it's a worthy consideration for purposes like, should we investigate him as a suspect? Yes, of course. Because... In terms of deciding whether he's a fair suspect, um, then you're looking for, is it possible that he did it? Or is it impossible so we can exclude him as a suspect, right? That's kind of the evidentiary threshold you're looking for when you're talking about investigating someone for a crime. But to convict someone of a crime, you're supposed to prove them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Can we say beyond any reasonable doubt that the moment someone stops using their cell phone, that's when they died? No. There's literally a two-hour window in which they could have died. We we don't know. You can choose to believe they died the minute they stopped using their cell phone, but that's a choice. It's not based on evidence. So that's, again, that's poor reasoning. Um, what was... Uh, and, of course, there's, there's a lot of evidence counter uh, to a reasonable expectation of guilt, much less proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh I, I never heard the state, for example, actually lay out step-by-step step how Alec Murda did this, consistent with the evidence. Where's all the blood, brains, and debris? Not just on him, and it would have been in his hair, the shotgun blast to his son. He would have been awash in blood. It would have been in his hair. It would have been on his, all over his clothes. 
Uh, it would have been all over the shotgun. And if you've ever really cleaned a shotgun, which most people don't do because it's a pain, but there's a lot of nooks and crannies on a shotgun. So where's all this blood and DNA evidence? Where's all these brains everywhere? Uh, are we supposed to believe that he cleaned himself up perfectly in 16 minutes? Does that sound credible? Uh, I don't, I don't believe it. Um, the, uh, uh, this all the cell phone data, the timing data, the steps, folks, either you deem it reliable or not reliable. I think a lot of it's not reliable. But if you deem it reliable, then it has to be reliable for both the state and the defense. And if the state's going to rely on that cell phone data for time of death, that's how reliable that is, that, that speculative inference. Well, then the defense gets to rely on it for their purposes. That when the phone was thrown into the woods, when it had that last orientation change, and Alex Murdoch was half a mile away, he couldn't have thrown it. It's completely inconsistent with him being the killer because it's not reasonable to believe that anybody but the killer would have taken the phone and thrown it into the woods. Um, there was another... Oh, <clears throat> just, just poor reasoning. Uh, people saying, well, I just don't believe it could have been such a coincidence... Um, that there was some other person who was willing to kill uh, there at the kennel, and Alec was in the vicinity of the kennel. How? There's no way that could be a coincidence. Folks, that's just poor reasoning. Uh, these are completely independent events. Independent. So where, if you believe there was some other murderer, or at least the possibility, you're considering the possibility that there was somebody other than Alec Murdoch who committed the murders, Alec Murdoch and the murderer are acting completely independently of each other. And he lives there, Alec. So, of course, it would be normal for him to be around there all the time. The, the killer would, would be the unusual event. But it's ridiculous to say it's an unbelievable coincidence that they, they both could be there in the vicinity. If it was someone else who killed uh, the wife and son, well, they were there. They did the killing. And it's normal for Alec to be there. So just, just poor, poor thinking, poor reasoning, uh, uh, a lot of poisoning of, of the kind of facts of the case through these uh, documentaries that have come out. I guess I haven't seen the documentaries. I don't intend to watch them. To me, they're just noise. I only care about the evidence that was admitted into the trial uh, period. Um, in terms of uh, appeal potential, there's lots of grounds for appeal here. Folks, lots of appealable issues. Uh, again, as I always say, appeals are for losers. Um, means you lost the case. Uh, not only did you lose the case, but when you're on trial, every presumption, legal presumption is in your favor. You're presumed innocent, right? Until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Once the jury's found you guilty, you're presumed guilty. So all the legal inferences are against you. All the facts now by the appellate court are going to be viewed in the light most favorable to the prosecution, not to the defense. By the way, at trial, all the facts are supposed to be viewed in a light most favorable to the defense. I don't believe the jury did that for a moment. But so everything's against you on appeal. Um, also, you know, the appellate courts are human beings. And if Alec goes on to get convicted on the financial crimes and sentenced to life prison for that, um, as well may be the case and would appear to be well-deserved, uh, 
the appellate courts might just say, listen, even if we take this case and we, we fight through six weeks of transcripts and uh, all these issues that the appellate attorneys are going to raise. And by the way, the appellate attorneys almost certainly would be different attorneys than the trial attorneys. The appellate attorneys may just be Alec Murdoch pro se because he doesn't have any money. Uh, everything he ever owned has been taken into receivership for the benefit of the people he stole money from. Um, but the appellate courts may well take the position and listen, even if we were to do all this hard work, pragmatically doesn't change anything. He's still in prison for the rest of his life on the financial stuff. So that may be just, you know, not a technical legal reason not to take the appeal or, or give it much effort, but just a, a pragmatic reason not to do it. Uh, plus, of course, I mean, let's face it. Uh, I have serious questions about whether or not he murdered his wife and son. I certainly don't believe the state proved he murdered them beyond a reasonable doubt, but he's still a contemptible human being. So, you know, unless you're, <laughs> unless you're like me and you really care about due process of law, who's going to come to this guy's defense? Nobody. So I, I, I would not expect much to come from any appeal elements. All right, let me look through. Uh, the only people left now are the... Uh, you law self-defense members, thank you for your support, as always. Uh, let's see. Uh, law self-defense member. Well, I don't guess I don't have to say that because you're all law self-defense members if you're still listening. Uh, Paul says Alex was guilty the moment he walked into the courtroom. Seems likely. Uh, 45 minutes to arrive at a verdict after six weeks of testimony. A completely circumstantial case. No direct evidence at all. And no motive. I'm sorry, people. I, I just don't. I think this motive argument is nonsense. First of all, it's based entirely on speculation. Uh, there's no reason to believe Alec Murdoch's life was imminently about to implode. Uh, he'd always gotten out of getting caught in financial stuff before. He'd always talked his way out of it or bought his way out of it. Uh, he'd always been able to borrow money. He had lots of rich people he could borrow money from. Uh, I'm not at all convinced that Alec believed that his life was about to collapse. But even if, he, if it was, plenty of people steal money, get caught for stealing money, embezzling, all, all kinds of terrible things. They never murder anybody. It, it's, and there's no evidence that Alec Murdo ever had any proclivities to violence at all, particularly with respect to his wife and son. We had direct testimony that they were lovey-dovey, that he adored them, even from the state witnesses who were in a position to know. So I, I just don't believe it. On a human level, I, I don't believe that was a motive for him. A few weeks delay in exposure of his financial crimes, that's reason to permanently murder his wife and son? I don't buy it. Uh, the judge, I could do an entire multi-hour show just on this judge. Oh, by the way, I want to say, I really find disgusting uh, the, the movie star uh, type uh, demeanor of the prosecutors and the judge in this case and the media that's enabling that. This is disgusting. Um, the prosecutor was just doing his job. The prosecutor's demeanor after the trial should be no less professional, no more movie star if he'd won the case or lost the case. Either way, he would have done his job. And the same with the judge. Them taking rock star photos of themselves and autographing documents. To my mind, this is, this is a way of the media ensuring facilitating their ability to railroad the next defendant they don't like because the prosecutors and judge in that case will know they'll be heroes too if they participate in that railroading. Certainly you think that's not what bigger was looking forward to in the Rittenhouse case. 
You think Binger wasn't expecting to be treated like a rock star if he got convictions on Rittenhouse? I think it's disgusting. And I would feel the same way, uh, regardless of the underlying legal merits of the case. I just don't think prosecutors and judges should be conducting themselves in this kind of way. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be personal for them. They're doing a job. Um, Let's see. A lot of comments, not too many direct questions, folks. So I've been talking for over two hours. So I may, I may skip over. Some, I will skip over some of this. Yeah. So uh, a LOL cat writes the lack of any gatekeeping by the judge was just appalling. Everything the state wanted in came in. It was despicable. I mean, under this judge's rationale. So normally, of course, character evidence is not admissible. Uh, the notion that you you might have committed some other bad act is not admissible in a trial against you on an unrelated charge. But apparently all the state has to say is part of your motive for committing the charged bad act is you didn't want the prior bad act to be disclosed. That gets it in. Well, if that's the loophole, you, you can fit a jumbo jet through it. Everything can come in if the, if the state merely alleges that part of your motive was to cover up discovery of that other bad act. It's crazy. Then, then why even have the prohibition on character evidence? It's absolutely insane. And when you let it in, if you decide to let it in, they could have done all this financial stuff in, in, in a, a day instead of two weeks. I mean, just, just the weight of that very prejudicial testimony um, was overwhelming. And it's... <laughs> And again, the connection to the murders is completely speculative. It's going to this highly speculative motive argument that I just don't buy. Um, let's see. Uh, Tax Pro Pam says, do you think the result could have been different if the defense had presented a better closing? So listen, I'm critical of the defense closing. And, and I say that in the most sympathetic way. Uh, these guys, this defense team, they did a, a solid job. They're good lawyers. They were exhausted by the end and, and perhaps demoralized by the end, given, given the rulings of this judge. Um, the, 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 that cross of the state's expert on rebuttal was just, it was literally tired. It was tired. The closing was tired. There was no overarching narrative to the closing, no compelling argument to the closing. Um, and I don't think, I suspect that's not the normal quality of work of that defense team. Uh, I think if they had done the closing argument at two weeks or three weeks, like they had planned, it might have been a very different closing, a more compelling closing, but it was six weeks, six weeks plus. And these trials, folks, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to be in court in the hot seat every hour and then dealing with motions and arguments after the court goes into recess each day. It's just utterly exhausting. So I think the closing could have been better. I have my criticisms of the closing, again, in full sympathy with the defense counsel. I get it. But I don't think even a perfect closing would have made any difference. I think this jury had decided on guilt long before we ever got the closing. 45 minutes of deliberations in a circumstantial evidence case, six weeks of testimony, 45 minutes, they, they didn't deliberate anything. I think that the two jurors who were originally not guilty and the one who was undecided, I think they looked at those other jurors who had decided on guilt and they realized we're never going to change our minds. 
those guys have decided guilt. Those nine have decided guilt on a purely emotional level, which is powerful. And, and you, you can't reason a person out of a position they did not reason themselves into in the first place. And I think those two not guilty and the one uncertain, they said to themselves, well, I could argue with them for two weeks of deliberations and nothing would change. Or I can just accept the inevitable. And it's not, it's not like this defendant was a likable guy, right? So I, I suspect that's what happened. I, I think we'll never really know. And I don't really believe what jurors say when they're interviewed afterward anyway. Uh, because they always have, they have lots of reasons to be less than entirely truthful in those post-trial interviews. But I suspect that's what happened. Uh, let's see. Well, I don't know if the defense had an understanding of self-defense law. This wasn't a self-defense case. So it never came up. But the only person who ever mentioned the concept of self-defense was uh, the state rebuttal attorney. Meters, I think his name was. I don't know why. Self-defense had nothing to do with this. Uh, let's see. Yeah, that cell phone thrower on rebuttal. That was ridiculous evidence. The judge was completely wrong uh, in admitting that. Uh, that witness... The judge arguing, well, defense, you accepted him as an expert witness. Yes, in a very narrow area, data extraction, not the physics of a phone. So that would be classic, uh, uh, you know, appealable error on the part of the judge. It was blatantly wrong. Um, but will it make any difference on appeal? Really? I don't know. Um Yeah, so the defense may just been demoralized, like like that ruling on that the state cell phone expert on rebuttal. I mean, if that's what the judge is going to do, you have no hope, really. Uh, and and if they sense that the the jury merely needed a reason to convict, so they didn't need proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They they merely needed a plausible hypothesis that in combination with confirmation bias would, would let the jury sleep easy with a conviction. Um, if that's all the jury needed, well, the state gave them that. that. That's not the legal standard. That's not what's supposed to be required for conviction, but you have to be very careful with juries. Juries are dangerous and unpredictable creatures. They, they I would argue they typically don't hold themselves to a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Mo most of us, that's not how we make decisions in real life. We generally make real-life decisions on a preponderance of the evidence basis. Do I want to eat here or do I want to eat there? Which do I want more? And you pick based on your preference in the moment. Um, it can be very difficult to hold a real-life jury to that beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And I think defense attorneys really need to, to work it hard. I, and I think, I mean, on opening, they, they did a pretty good job on that. The presumption of innocence, the burden beyond a, a reasonable doubt on the state. Um, they mentioned it in closing, but again, I think, you know, the, the opening was six weeks earlier, six and a half weeks in the past. And there'd be dozens and dozens of witnesses testifying in the meantime. And the closing, the closing was tired, meandering, lacking a narrative. It just wasn't great. Oh, John Korea. Um, so John Korea runs a very popular, uh, YouTube channel. Um, active self-protection. 
Uh, and he does a pretty good job in those videos. They're, they're enjoyable. I mean, I, I don't spend much time on YouTube, so I, I don't watch a lot of them myself, but I, I've seen them. He's also a graduate of our Law Self-Defense Instructor Program, uh, which is an exam-based certification. So he, he completed that 15 or whatever hours of self-defense law instruction intended for self-defense instructors uh, and passed the exam, got that certification. I certainly wouldn't take at well, I certainly obviously wouldn't literally take it away, but I wouldn't figuratively take it away from him. He, he, he did that course successfully uh, and got the law self-defense instructor program certificate for it as, as he should have. Um, but there was a couple cases, uh, use of force cases recently. The uh, uh, one was the, um, the Tyree Nichols case in Chicago. The other was the, uh, the, the Paulding, Georgia sheriff's office arrest case. Um, where I did use of force analysis and uh, he disagreed with my analysis uh, <laughs> kind of in a, a personal way, um, an insulting way. I, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook, which is where I guess John posted his kind of insulting take on my analysis on Facebook, but I, I just happened to see it. Maybe somebody sent it to me. I don't remember. Um, so my response is always great. Awesome. Uh, let's debate it. Let's have a public debate. It can be hosted by a you know, uh, uninvolved third party. Uh, and I'll present my legal analysis, my rationale for my analysis of these use of force cases. And you can present yours. Uh, and then we can even do a poll at the end and, and see which the audience finds more compelling. Um, because I, I don't believe in appeals to authority. I don't believe in telling people you should agree with me just because I'm Andrew Branca. Listen to my argument. Listen to the other guy's argument. Make your decision. Um, and, uh, and if I lose that, it's, that's fine. I'm, I don't take that personally. Uh, but as always happens when I extend offers to debate, <laughs> uh, the person who uh, contested my analysis on Facebook to his fans um, doesn't want to debate in a neutral forum in front of the world. At least they don't want to debate me. Uh, so he turned me down. It's, it's still out there, John. If you, <laughs> if you, if open invitation anytime, really to anybody. Uh, but especially John Korea, uh, that would um, just let me know. I'll be there. But uh, I don't expect that ever to happen. Um, the um, There was a, a thing a few years ago when the first Trump election, um, when John Korea was advocating that people should vote not for Trump, but for, what was that guy's name? Ewan McMullen or something? Uh, a crackpot candidate and uh, who had no chance of winning. I guess uh, John is also, I believe, a pastor, and he took moral offense at Trump. Uh, and I saw any vote for someone other than Trump as a sure Hillary Clinton win, which I did not want. Um, so I argued against him. I said, John, you're being silly. You're the candidate you're pushing is going to get zero electoral votes, which is what he got, zero electoral votes. Um, and if Trump has any chance of winning, he needs every vote he can get. So you're basically saying you want Clinton to be president. Uh, well, he took offense at that and uh, blocked me. I don't know. I think I'm blocked on all his social media. Uh, but that has nothing to do with use of force law. That was a, a political disagreement, I which I certainly forgot about the moment Trump got elected. I still think it was uh, bad political advice by John, but that's a separate matter. Uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, Gary asks, what are a few points your subscribers should learn from this case that may affect what we should or should not do? It's always the, the, same, the same caution I give all of you. Do not put yourself in front of a jury. 
Do not put yourself in front of a jury. Even the even if you're the most innocent person that ever walked the face of the earth, there's at least a 10% chance you get convicted. And that goes up to at least 50% if it's a politically energized or heaven forbid, racially energized case. So do not put yourself in front of a jury unless you genuinely have no alternative option. And for me, that would be the, the life of myself or the life of my family. Um, then if I get convicted, what was the alternative? That I was going to die or my family was going to die? I'd rather be in jail than have that happen. Um, but it's hard for me to think of any other reasons I would be willing to subject myself to a jury, no matter how innocent or justified I was. And, and that's, I don't tell other people what to do, but that's what I caution. That's the risk. Uh, let's see. Yeah, a LOL cat mentions during the Zimmerman trial, the defense team uh, during voir dire. So even before the trial started, even before the jury was selected and seated uh, during voir dire, the jury, they had this big uh, like uh, cardboard, vertical cardboard threshold of evidence chart. And uh, they told the jury, look, here's preponderance of the evidence. Here's clear and convincing evidence. That means you probably think our guy's guilty, but that's not enough to convict. Conviction requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and they had to reach all the way up to the top of this chart. I thought that was a very graphic and compelling um, explanation of just how heavy the burden was on the state. Uh, I've heard since Steve Gosney, also down in Florida, of course, uh, tells me that's become a more common practice now in uh, self-defense cases in Florida. And I, I think it should be everywhere. I, <laughs> I, I think it's practically malpractice if a defense attorney doesn't do that. And then, of course, you're doing it during voir dire because then you ask the jury, will, will you commit to that being the threshold that you will apply to our client when you go into the deliberations? And of course, they all nod their heads. It's easy to get the commitment then. Uh, and then they're emotionally committed to doing that. It really kind of blocks them in, hopefully, uh, to the actual legal standard. So they, they, it's less likely they go loosey-goosey. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of that chart. Um, okay, I think that's about it, folks. Uh, so thank you all for being Law Self-Defense members. Uh, always feel free to recommend to your friends and family that they become Law Self-Defense members too. 30 cents a day. I, I am going to be doing more of this kind of thing where we have member only content. Uh, I've been, I've been remiss in that. Uh, but you guys are our supporters and you deserve more than the average Joe on the street. Uh, and I'm going to work harder to make sure we deliver that to all of you. Uh, we may have members only Q and a shows, members only violent video breakdowns, members only, uh, Q and a segments on the ends of public streams as we did here today. Uh, and if you have suggestions for more of that kind of stuff that you think it would be useful for me to do that you would find valuable as a member, uh, please, uh, feel free to send those suggestions to support at law Just put a, you know, forward to Andrew or something in the subject line. So they know to, uh, to, uh, push it on to, to me directly. So I get a chance to see that. Otherwise they'll attempt to take care of it themselves. Um, all right, folks. So, as always, again, if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun. So I'm hard to kill. My family's hard to kill. Then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure, as you know, you know the law, so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain attorney Andrew Branca for a law of self-defense. Stay safe. Mm -hmm.